This is Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, season two, episode 15. And on this episode, I kick up the dust with retired Sergeant Manny Luciano. Hey everyone, I'm Anthony Weaver, and the Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast aims to promote law enforcement with biblical truth and push back against the negative narrative about the profession that we see every single day. One of the main ways I do that is by giving officers a seat at my podcast table to talk about who they are and why they answered the call to be a police officer, giving us all a glimpse of what it's really like to do the job day in and day out, night in and night out. On this episode, I have a conversation with retired Sergeant Manny Luciano. It's a raw conversation from a guy who served both in law enforcement and who's also served extensively overseas on behalf of our country, and you absolutely do not want to miss that conversation. After that, I'll be addressing something called the 30 by 30 initiative in the So Woke It's Broke segment, and I'll also be highlighting the work of some local officers in the Q to Dip segment. But before we dive into all that, a quick word about my great sponsors of this podcast. Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, is a proud affiliate of Audible. Right now, you can get a free 30-day trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash diakonosacc. I have an Audible membership, and it is my go-to way to take in a book. As a family, we use Audible all the time on long trips to listen to books with the kids, and I personally use it when I'm driving, doing yard work, or have some downtime. Right now, I'm listening to The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer, which is an excellent and thought-provoking book. In addition, Audible offers thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, including this one, plus much more. As an affiliate, Diakonos the Cops Calling Podcast gets a commission for each newly generated trial through the link provided. You can get a free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audibletrial.com slash diakonosacc. This link will also be included in the podcast episode descriptions and can also be found on the podcast website at diakonosacc.com. Diakonos, a Cops Calling, is sponsored by Iron Shirt Barbecue Company. Iron Shirt Barbecue is a barbecue caterer that is family owned by Glenn and Kendra Stoltzfus, and you can get a 10% discount off your first order with them right now. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company focuses on serving fresh, handcrafted barbecue and sides from their home to your event. Glenn has been honing his craft for 15 years and excels at the art of smoking ribs, brisket, and pork to perfection before he cuts, pulls, or slices it fresh at your event. Kendra makes all the sides from scratch, including mac and cheese, baked beans, and creamy coleslaw to perfectly complement the ribs, brisket, or pork. I've had the absolute pleasure of having barbecue prepared by Iron Shirt Barbecue. Hands down, it is the best barbecue I've ever eaten, so that's how I can confidently say that when Iron Shirt Barbecue caters your next event, you will not be disappointed. Book them for your wedding, family reunion, graduation, birthday party, or simple cookout. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on Facebook and Instagram to see their menu, photos of their amazing food, and contact information for booking. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company needs to be the caterer for your next event. And if you mention that you heard about Iron Shirt Barbecue on this podcast, you will get a 10% discount on your order. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company right now on Facebook and Instagram to learn more and get booking information. Then mention you heard them on the Diakonos, a Cops Calling podcast, and you will get a 10% discount on your order. Diakonos, a Cops Calling is supported by the Lancaster Patriot. The Lancaster Patriot is a conservative newspaper serving Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and beyond. If you are tired of liberal bias in your local newspaper, then you need to switch to the Lancaster Patriot right now. The Lancaster Patriot is not ashamed to stand on biblical truth and defend traditional values. Their newspaper includes local stories from Lancaster County, local sports, 
state, national, and international stories. They even have faith and perspective sections that apply the scripture to our culture. This is not a newspaper that will win any liberal or woke awards, but it will bring you the news free from corporate agendas and government talking points. Subscribe to the Lancaster Patriot today and get a real print newspaper delivered right to your door every single week. I am a proud subscriber of the Lancaster Patriot, and you can join me. As a fan of Diakonasa Cops Calling, you can get a discounted subscription right now. Use promo code Diakonas, that's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S, and receive $15 off your first year's subscription. Sign up online at thelancasterpatriot.com or call 717-370-7508. Again, enter code Diakonas and save $15 on your first year subscription to local, honest, and conservative news. Visit www.thelancasterpatriot.com for more information or call them at 717-370-7508. My guest on this episode is retired Sergeant Manny Luciano. Manny served with the Lancaster Bureau of Police for 26 years. During that time, he was a patrol officer, canine handler, a member of the Lancaster County CERT team, a detective in property, special investigations, and violent crime. And he retired as a sergeant from that department in 2021. In addition, Manny is a decorated U.S. Army combat veteran, having served in combat zones to include Kosovo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Manny, welcome to the podcast. Hey now, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, as soon as I saw you, I'd seen pictures of you somewhere <laughs> uh, and I saw that you had a beard. That thing is, I'd like to think my year that I had off, I grew a very epic beard. I, I, I like to, I think I can brag about the beard I grew. Absolutely. Yours was very well groomed when uh, come came to pay you a visit, uh, Sergeant Drace and I saw you and- it actually very wasn't very groomed, though. It I looked, just let it go. It looked groomed compared to this shaggy DA thing I got going on. Yeah, here. and it's and and yours is like like you <laughs> said when you when you came in, you're the uh, what did you call yourself the the Recon Santa Claus. <laughs> so is that a gig for you here? I mean, we're we're like three mm. months out from uh, Christmas. Yeah. Is that going to be a gig? We might be able to do a little something something for the right price. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Uh, well, it looks great. I, I love the I love the beard. Uh, you also mentioned, and you are correct. You are the first uh, Latino <laughs> guest I've had on the podcast, so uh, that's uh, very cool. And it, I mean, it's special for me too because I think, I mean, we we've always gotten along on the job. Absolutely, we worked together. Always got along on the job. But I think for me, uh, some of the the best conversations I had with you were literally my last year on the job. And some of the stuff we were going through, it was helpful for me to talk to you and just get your perspective on stuff like that. So just looking forward to having a conversation with you and talking talking about some stuff and we'll see what happens, right? Yeah, we can do that. You remember the last thing you said to me before you left? I don't. You, you walked up to me in this. It was when we you were, they were doing your kind of going away party. Okay. You looked right at me and said, "I appreciate you." It meant a <laughs> lot. It meant a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean that that type of stuff. Like I appreciated a lot of people there. It's just something that uh, you work with a lot of guys. And when they say stuff like that, it means a lot. 
It does. I had people say the same sort of thing to me. And that does mean a lot when uh, people recognize that because, you know, when you're on the job, you go, you go through a lot of stuff together. Oh, yeah. And, and those last <laughs> couple years were whew, intense. They were intense. And, and, you know, and it's just uh, the level of camaraderie and, and the stuff you go through together. Uh, you, you, uh, you really gel with, with people that are going, uh, going, going through the same stuff with you. Yeah. Standing next to you, shoulder yeah. to shoulder. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, no, I, <laughs> you got me right there at the beginning, Manny. I, well, I did not remember I said that to you. And you, you said it right to me, and I had to walk back to my office. I was like, man, that was appreciated. Um, I haven't had too many people from the department make a comment like that direct, like you shook my hand. I mean, I think I said, congratulations, shook your hand. And you were like, Hey, I, I really appreciate you. It was good working with you. And I was just like, wow. Like, I know we had conversations and we, you know, did stuff the last year, two years there. Um, but yeah, it just meant a lot when you said yeah. it. And, uh, I'm just letting you know that. Yeah. Appreciate well, it. I appreciate that. Yeah. So, you know, like I usually do with all my guests, I like to dive kind of into you know, who they are and where they're from, sure. uh, their history. And uh, so I, th I think it would be interesting and, and helpful if you just kind of talked about where you grew up, how you grew up, uh, and what that looked like. Yeah. So um, born and raised um, in Ephrata, the metropolis, Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, uh, my family, uh, my parents uh, originally uh, were born uh, and raised in uh, Adjuntas, Puerto Rico. Okay. Um, and at one point, um, you know, I talked to my dad about it, but years, I can't remember. I think he was maybe uh, like 17, 18 years old. Um, he had the opportunity to come from Puerto Rico uh, to the United States um, uh, to find work. Uh, his biggest thing was he wanted to uh, just really make a better life for himself in Puerto Rico. He, you know, born, raised, uh, you know, picking coffee, working the fields, um, working for his dad, um, doing that. And he just, you know, really wanted to, I guess, make a better life for himself and his eventual family. So he came to the United States. Um, again, I can't remember what year, but uh, when he came to the States, uh, he let me know that uh, his first job uh, was working at uh, Funks. Um, it's the old Funks farm at Millersville. Yeah. And he basically, uh, you know, worked the fields there, uh, picking every type of pro yeah, produce that you can imagine. Um, and it was for a couple months. And then uh, after that, um, he was able to get his first, I say, real job because, you know, the Funks job was, you know, the, the cheap labor. Um, yeah. No benefits. He slept in, uh, he told me it was like a, a bunk room that held, you know, like four stacked or four high bunk beds really? um, with about, I'm going to say, if I remember correctly, 40 to 50 other uh, males. Um, you know, he said a lot of them were Hispanic from Puerto Rico, a lot of Dominicans. Uh, he said every now and then a Cuban would show up and, you know, they'd mess with him and, you know, Dominicans were always messed with Puerto Ricans. It was just, you know, like the camaraderie, but they were all there really just to make money, send it back to their country and, you know, or their Island per okay. se and, and help themselves out, um, hopefully in the future. So 
My dad was fortunate enough to get hired by, uh, back then, uh, Weaver's Chicken in okay. New Holland. Um, first job, chasing chickens. He was a chicken catcher. Um, and he basically said, I was willing to do anything to get a job that paid me a little bit better than being out in the fields 12 hours plus a day, or, uh, or as well as uh, getting some type of benefits. So he started with Weaver's. Um, and he worked himself through Weaver's up the chain. He actually uh, told me he took, uh, they paid him to take English as a second language classes at night. He would listen to country music because he could understand the words. Okay. That helped him with his English. And this was the best one. He told me he watched um, Cartwright, the horses, like Boss oh, Hawes. Yeah. yeah, that show. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the actual show, but uh, oh, yeah. you know what I'm talking um, um, I can't remember the name of it. But it's it's going to come to me here at some he point. He loved those country westerns, but it was because he could listen to it and he learned how to speak English, like taking classes and that. So, you know, that was something that uh, really stuck with me, his work ethic. Um, you know, I think that's what, you know, really, uh, you know, made me who I am even till this day as far as work ethic and just uh, wanting to do better for my family. So he told me he got that job. Um, because he took those um, classes, um, they actually asked him to be a, a group leader, it was called, uh, kind of like a foreman. Okay. And it was really just teaching all the incoming workers from Puerto Rico or any other country that they spoke Spanish as their primary language, teaching them in Spanish what their job was, and then they could come in and you know do a job. And you know he ended up being kind of like a supervisor doing that. Okay. So, he did that. Then uh, he kind of moved up. Uh, ended up being like a supervisor, and he stayed with Weaver. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm going to say almost forty years. He was with, uh, yeah, Weavers. Um, okay. And it's one of those things where the only reason he left is he had the opportunity to to buy a downtown store, you know, and uh, that was his. Always his thing was to have a business in, in the United States. So how long, how long did he run that store then? Um, so I'm going to say he ran that. So he bought it from my, my two uncles. They owned it um, for a few years, a couple years, not even, I'm going to say it was like maybe a few, three years, four. And then he owned it for, oh my gosh, he probably owned that store for uh, just shy of 20 years. Okay, Roughly. so he was at Weaver's for forty, and then yeah. he owned the store for tw- for twenty. Yeah, right, so, right around there. Yeah, the numbers. I mean, he's seventy six, seventy seven. So I'm thinking he came to the United States about eighteen ish, and then you know worked for Weaver's. That's fifty eight, and then he owned it for yeah. Well, actually, it would have been less than that. So it probably would have been a little less than twenty years at the store, maybe like fifteen years. Okay, I can't know off the top of my head. So, okay. And yeah. was the store that he owned, was it always that store there at King and Mulberry in the city? Yeah, that's the only store he ever owned. Now, the, the family, you, you said you had a lot of family move here. Sure. Did you have a lot of family at some point move back to Puerto Rico or are, are most of them still here, the ones that moved to um, Pennsylvania? You know, both uh, on both sides of my parents, my mom and my dad, um, it's uh, eight siblings. So Oh, wow. I had, you know, my dad had three brothers and four sisters, you know, yeah. and my mom, same thing, uh, four brothers and uh, three sisters. 
So um, right now, I think if I remember correctly, there's still one, two, there's probably two on my dad's side and maybe two on my mom's side. Okay. So yeah, I have a, an aunt, actually two aunts that are still there on my mom's side. And I think, let's see, an uncle and an aunt on my dad's side. Yeah. Cause my uncle, he's actually a police officer in Adjuntas. He's a, okay. a municipal officer there for the small town. And then, uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, I have a cousin that's a, a police officer for the entire, uh, island of Puerto like a state police. Okay. Type. So yeah, I still have a lot of relatives there, but as far as uncles and aunts, it would just be like two on each side. Everyone else lives in either Pennsylvania. I have one or two in New Jersey. So, but they're all still close. Would you say that work ethic that your dad had is one of the main things he instilled in you? Or was that one of several different things he instilled in you? Um, I mean, I think that is probably in the top, like, you know, three, if I were to say things, you know, he instilled in me, it was just, um, you know, family work ethic. Um, and just, you know, and I say it because I remember he used to get a little bit of a, I guess, nudging slash whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't, he didn't really say it was like belittling or made fun of, but when he first came to, you know, the job, um, being Hispanic, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, I don't say bullying, but he, he was, you know, he was a worker. Yeah. Hey, go out there in the fields, do your job, come back. So, um, you know, my thing was just being that hard worker that I saw him and what he did over the years, even to his late before, you know, late years where he could have just been done owning a store, his own business, making his own hours, doing whatever he want, you know, and providing for, you know, my, my brother and I, as well as again, I've, you know, two sisters that went right. to college and, you know, we're 20 years apart, <laughs> but, wow. um, it's one of those things where they went to college, stayed at home, uh, which, you know, financially helped them. Um, and of course they helped my parents and, uh, you know, my, my, my parents basically said, Hey, for you guys, you know, do what you need to do to get your, your college. They're both uh, social workers. They have their masters. So they were able to do that because of my parents assisting them as much as they could. Okay. So now what, what caused you to want to get into law enforcement? Was it what you, you mentioned, I think you said an uncle and a cousin, mm -hmm. uh, that were in law enforcement in Puerto Rico. Was that drive that or, or no? You know, I think it was one of those things where, you know, it's like everyone says, Oh yeah, I want to help the, this person that help everybody. I mean, for me, it was always like, um, just a service, um, a service back to, I, I say, even though Puerto Rico is part of the United States, right. to me, it's a service back to this country, um, because of what opportunities it provided my family. If my dad would have never came to Puerto from Puerto Rico to Pennsylvania, I don't know, I could possibly still be in Puerto Rico farming the land that my family has owned, you know, probably for three, four generations. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just one of those things where, um, you know, I, I just appreciate what he did, um, and how he instilled, you know, that work ethic, just the respect for others, um, kind of just understanding that there's, you know, uh, positives and, and, and just everything's going to work itself out if you do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, try not to, you know, 
guess for better use of words, stab people in the back or just, you know, try and do things that you shouldn't do. Yeah. So obviously that, that service mentality for you, you were, you also joined the arm. Were you, did you join the, the army before you got into law enforcement and, and do four years and then sign on with them? Yeah. So what I did was, um, you know, I, of course, wanted to get into law enforcement, um, like right away, but since we can't, you know, at the, at our wonderful age of 18 and I didn't turn 18, I graduated in June of 88, but I didn't turn 18 till August of 88. Okay. So how do you, what's the best thing I could do? And again, this was, it just, I remember it very vividly. I was a a BC student. So I hated like studying and I really didn't want to go to college. Um, but you know, my dad just kind of sat back when my mom said, here's the ultimatum. You go to college, you can stay here for free. Um, we'll help you take out loans for college. Um, but you know, you have to, you live under our house. You're going to abide by our rules. You're not going to be out, you know, hooping it up and partying, doing all their stuff. And you're going to get your degree or (laughs) you can get a job. And you'll pay to live here um, because, you know, you're 18, uh, you're not going to eat for free. You're not going to just hang out, you know, rent free. And, and I understood all that. And then the final thing was my idea, not to be a burden on my parents because my dad at that, you know, 17, 18 year age. He was out. He was out. And he came to the United States and he made, he took care of himself. I didn't want my parents to have to worry about me. And again, going back to that, being a police officer, I knew at you know, 21, I could then be a police officer. So I was like, you know what? Let me figure out what I can do that will give me a job immediately, give me 30 days vacation, a paycheck, a place to sleep, and feed me. Ding, ding, the military. <laughs> so... um I went to a recruiter over by uh, the mall when it was a different location, but, you know, uh, near where it is now and uh, walked in and man, it was one of those things where I think this guy saw me a mile away because his last name, I'll never forget, Sergeant First Class Negron. Okay. Hispanic, Puerto Rican. As soon as I walked in, I said, uh, hello, um, I'd like to speak to somebody about, you know, military opportunities. What's your name? Manuel Luciano. As soon as he heard Luciano, Luciano, tu eres portojo. And he started talking to me in Spanish. And I'm like, si, uh, soy portojo. Um, and I started talking to him back. Siéntate aquí. Sit over here. And I <laughs> sat down. And I mean, he had me, you know, fish, what do they call it? Hook, line, and sink. Or whatever. Yeah, right. He snatched me. But he was he was very like honest in a sense of what I could and you know, could do, couldn't do. And there was different things I didn't know about. I found out after the fact, but I wanted to, to join the military because um, I knew when I got out, I would be 20, 22 years old. Um, I enlisted in September of 88. So I would have got out, um, you know, September of what, 92. Um, I ended up not doing a full four years. Um, I was stationed in Arizona first, then went to Germany. And when I was in Germany, they had an opportunity for people to get out a little early. So I did about three and three quarter years, roughly. Okay. 
Um, so I was able to get out, come home and again, trying to be a police officer, um, and having military benefits to go to school. I was like, okay, I'm home now. Uh, my parents were like, Hey, you're home. What are you going to do? And I'd save some money in the military. I said, well, I'd like to go to the academy. I'm going to try and look into that. But at the time it wasn't something that I was going to be able to do right away. So had to get a job. So I ended up getting a job, um, did like loss prevention at the mall. I worked, which was nice downtown. Uh, it was called, um, Shank brothers. Okay. Uh, it's was where the press room is right now. I don't know if they've changed that. I think someone else bought that, but it was right there in the center of, uh, West King street. So, um, yeah, I worked there for a little bit and, uh, that's when I started taking police tests. Okay. And, uh, at first it was very discouraging because again, I was in the military for three and a half, three and three quarter years. I'd taken a couple college courses because the captain of my company, a military police company said, you can either go take college courses after chow in the evening or go down to the motor pool and clean vehicles. Well, are you kidding me? I'm not going to go clean vehicles when I just go take a college course. So I went and did that, but I hadn't taken tests like the civil service tests. Yeah, it's, a, it's pretty different. And wasn't used to it. Um, I can tell you I probably failed or didn't score high enough to even be looked at um, for, I'm going to say, at least two years. Because I came home in 92. As about two years, I started taking tests. And then I got better at them, though. I started doing better. better. I would call departments that were civil service and say, can you at least let me know where you're, where I'm at? You know, I call and I was, you know, 275. And then, you know, as I, the years, couple months would go by and I take test after test and small departments, like, you know, uh, th- throughout the County. Uh, Hey, what did I score on this test? Oh, you're at 200 or, you know, 198 or, and as things, you know, started getting closer to 94, 95, as far as the year, um, I had taken the city's test already, uh, a couple other tests, Ephrata, I remember taking Mannheim Township, all the departments, you know, in the county. Um, I just was doing better to the point where um, when I took the test for Lancaster City before being hired in 95, I also was offered a job with Mannheim Township. Okay. So both at the same time, I was offered positions, what they call it, conditional hiring, just like yeah. that. Conditional officer. Yeah. Offers. So, um, and as soon as, you know, it was, I, I hate to say, it's one of those things people say, what, what, why didn't, why'd you make the decision to go to Lancaster City? Well, some of those times I was out in the first block of West King Street on my lunch break or just outside because nobody was in the store. I was talking to the mounted officers or an officer was just walking around downtown and they would tell me about the certain opportunities, meaning, yeah, I would say, well, hey, what do you think about Mannheim Township compared to the city? And it was, I never heard a negative thing. It was just, there's more opportunity because right. we're a bigger department. And I'm like, oh, wow. And they, most of the time it was the horse guy saying, hey, you can ride a horse. I'm like, you ain't getting me on a <laughs> daggone horse. There's no I'm way. I'm glad you feel like, I, I, that is one thing no, I said I will never, never. ever do. Well, I can tell you, I did it on my honeymoon. 
And that's a horror story. Uh, If you want to hear about that story, we can get that in later. Um, I rode a horse one time and again, never again. I only did it because I was on my honeymoon. And think about it. You're you're trying to control an animal. You have no control. And then you're also trying to deal with people. And people give me a hard time when I controlled a 125 pound Rottweiler on the job. No problem. Right. Not a horse. That is nothing but muscle and hooves and those big teeth and Dude, you know those those things frighten me. Yeah, the so. horses frighten me. I would walk way yeah. out around them. People would laugh at me. I'm like, hey, they're yeah. like ninjas. They can kick Not- sideways, backward. <laughs> they can kick every direction. And if they kick you, you're done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and instant concussion. Yeah, yeah exactly. No question about that or possible death. So, so let me ask you this: when you <laughs> when you were uh, when you were going through the hiring process and stuff, you said that was 92, 93. Got hired 95. Were they were they offering at that point points for uh, being able to speak Spanish and military points? Was that something they did back? Only military. Okay. They did not offer um, points for, for being bilingual at all. And I'd asked about that and they're like, nope, it's not part of anything. So do you, do you think that's a good thing that they do now? You know, it's one of those things where I'm kind of like torn between it being a good thing and not being fair. Um, but I look at it this way. Um, you know, I had uh, some pretty intense conversations on the job when I first got hired, and it happened to be uh, the final uh, rank he atta- obtained was captain. And this captain, him and I were both officers on the same shift, and we got into it about how I got 10 military preference points of the civil okay. service because I was a veteran, and he did not. Um, he scored higher on the test. He had a bachelor's degree. And when I got hired and this conversation came up probably a year and after being hired, um, it was like, I don't think that's fair. You had an opportunity that no one, I said, well, I joined the military. So I served my country. You didn't, you made a decision to go to college. And I understand that like you need people to go to college. And, you know, I just, wasn't the college guy. And I decided to do four years of my life in the military. Again, three and three quarters. And you decided to go to college. Um, and now guess what? Cause you have that four year degree, you get paid an extra stipend, whatever it is. Yeah, that's true. Do I get paid anything for knowing Spanish or for being in the military? And I say like, it's kind of one of those things where if I wouldn't have had the military preference, I don't know. I don't know if I would have got hired. Um, from what I from what I remember, um, my score was an eight. I think it was an eighty-seven. So I ended up having a ninety-seven. Okay. So at that time, um, I knew there was a big push for you know our our officers uh, being for officers being bilingual, and I just happened to be bilingual at that time and score nine. I think it was a nine an eighty-seven, ninety-seven, and. I got hired. Um, it was right after the big group that got hired. It was like 10 or 12 officers. Okay. Um, and then myself and two other officers got hired in a smaller group. Um, and, you know, I just feel I gave service to the country. I could have been deployed, gone somewhere, whatever it may be, you still would have been in college. And you probably wouldn't have been called unless there would have been like a, a draft or something like right. that. I don't know. I mean, you know, you, yeah. you got to look at it both ways. And I told him, I said, and I think years later, I told him, I said, hey, look, 
there you are. You have your bachelor's degree, finished your master's degree, and you made captain. I joined the military. I did pretty much everything I wanted to do in law enforcement. The last six, seven years is when I, you know what, I, I'm going to take the test now. I just, at the time when I was doing, you know, uh, drug task or canine drug task force, then detectives, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't right. want to be a supervisor. Right. Um, and then I said, oh, you know, I'm in the later years of my career here. I, I'm going to take the test. Became a sergeant. I didn't go hiring a sergeant. Um, you know, I kind of blame myself for not passing the lieutenant's test a couple times, but he did. And he became, he was a captain until this day. I still, you know, keep in touch with him and I respect him. Um, but him and I, we had some pretty intense yeah. arguments about the whole military civil service. Should you get points? Shouldn't you get points? It's not fair to me as a college person that I'm coming and taking this test that you have that advantage. And I said, I, I got nothing for you other yeah. than that was the military. It was a federal law that was enacted, and guess what? Yeah, I mean, I, I never, I always felt, hey, if you served your country and you got 10 points for serving your country, uh, yeah, or, or if you know Spanish as a second language and you can speak Spanish fluently, yeah, even that, I, I don't, I, I never thought it was a, uh, an issue. I mean, I mean, looking at my career, I wish I would have known Spanish. Yeah. I wish I would have known Spanish. I, I think it would have been, would have been helpful for me. Um, and even my wife, Lauren, she, she encouraged me to go take Spanish classes when I was like, you know, <laughs> 10, 15 years in, I I'm like, listen, babe, I got, uh, there's no way I can retain. There's so much <laughs> stuff in my head right now. There's no way I can retain <laughs> another, another language. language. Uh, but, but she's probably right. It would have been, well, I know she's right. It would have been helpful at times in my career to know Spanish. I, I truly feel, um, and I say this, um, without reservation, if I wouldn't have known Spanish, I'm not sure I would have gotten some of the opportunities that I got. Uh, and I say this, I think, you know, being an officer, my work ethic showed the first couple years, and I was fortunate to be a canine officer. To me, that was additional duties, additional responsibility. And I, I think, like, I really feel um, being in that position, and I was able to be available to everyone in that position. Right. Uh, on, while on patrol, as well as to assist detectives. And I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, I got abused. Yeah. I was just going to ask, mean, was it ever annoying that you knew Spanish? Because, you know, whenever you have that officer that knows Spanish, yep. they're just relied on a lot yep. to, to do interviews, help with interviews, right. show uh, up at certain calls. Yeah. There, were, there were times just because it, yeah, it, it weren't enough um, officers that knew Spanish. Um, you know, and you know, it's like you want one for every shift and if somebody's right. off and blah, but you know, for the betterment of, you know, the department slash, uh, safety of an officer and just getting to the bottom of what occurred and no, like, and the reality was even back then and now it's kind of changed a little bit, but back then, like when I showed up and I start speaking Spanish, like it was just a relief. You could see the face, like, oh, I, I can talk to this person and I'm going to get my point across where they were trying to use broken English. And, right. and, you know, the officer and I'd just be like, sometimes I would say, I got this, I'll handle it. Or I would say, hey, you know, this is what happened. If it was something basic, something simple, you know, I'd give the information and we'd figure it out because I had my own work to do and right. my own calls to answer. but. 
I always looked, and again, you know, I've worked there, you know, 26 plus. I, I, I always wanted, even when I left, I always wanted to be remembered as the officer that, it's not that I didn't ever say no, but I was always willing to help. I was always going to be available if needed. Um, in my later years, yeah, I, numerous times. Hey, uh, you have somebody speak Spanish on your shift. Use them. I have another job to do. Right. Um, and some people, off, uh, sergeants and lieutenants and higher, weren't happy with that. But I was never forced to speak Spanish. It was always my decision. And you know, there was a couple years there when I got involved with an organization that said, "Hey, we can, we can make this." You know, they can't make you. They're gonna have to pay you if they you te- they tell you, you got to speak Spanish and you're on the job. And and you know, people heard about it and they're like. Well, you came to the job with that. That's why you were hired. No, I was hired because I took the test and scored what I scored, just like anyone else. But I was willing to continue to speak Spanish and help because the victims weren't going to get any help if someone didn't speak Spanish. And they couldn't bring in, you're going to pay interpreters, you know, three times what officers make right. to come in. And you can't do that. It's right. just not cost effective slash. That- in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., there's a robbery or shooting. How are you going to pay somebody to speak Spanish when you got to have an officer there to, to do it? Right. That knows it. Yeah. That's why I'd asked you about, you know, getting points for, for speaking Spanish. There's, there's some thought out there that it's an un... So a person who just grew, like grew up a certain way, grew, you know, their parents are from Puerto Rico, grew sure. up a certain way, yeah. now, now has an advantage because they speak a second language. Um, and and I I I mean I could see both sides of it. The other side of it is okay. Well, what if you have someone that doesn't know Spanish, uh, you know, and they go out and they learn Spanish and they can speak Spanish fluently? Do we just give them ten extra points because they learned it, but they right. weren't born knowing it? Like yeah. I, I feel, you know, and and here's the thing, you know, the bottom line is, you know, you have people that went into the military that get ten points. I think now, do you get points now if you live? Like in Lancaster City, do you get some points if you live in the city? I think I can't remember. Yeah. I think it's the max is 10 points. Right. So you can't get more than 10 points. I think if you're military, you got your 10. If you're not military, then it's, you know, the, um, the residency or if you live within the city. Okay. It's speaking another language. Um, and I don't know if what else they were getting yeah. points for. Being yeah. a, I don't know if they do with being a CSA or I'm not sure. Okay. I can't remember. But anyway, I, I would agree with you in a sense where I can see both ways. Yeah. I truly can because people are coming up to me and say, that's just another tool in your tool belt and all that. What, what, what tool belt? I, I mean, my first language was Spanish. Right. And anyone that tells me different, I'm going to tell them, you know, right. my parents, I grew up learning Spanish um, and, you know, English was my second language. Now I learned it pretty quickly because I was born and raised in Ephrata, like. So I went to school and was learning English because I had to. And um, but if you don't know Spanish and you want to have that, I don't know, extra points, <laughs> go learn, go take a, yeah. a course, or yeah. you know, because I know of officers that still work there to this day, and and um, you know, work in other jobs that um, they are either paid to go learn Spanish, or if they learn it, they'll get paid extra as part, but they have to take a proficiency test. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I, you know, I, 
I guess they call it CLEP. Uh, when I took college courses, I took a CLEP for Spanish. One test, actually, yeah, it was one test, two and a half hours long, and it gave me all four years of Spanish. That's I had all, to do, yeah. I had to listen to you know these words and statements, answer questions, and I was just like, it's because I knew the language. Now, you know, I tell everyone this day, even to this day, and I had people in our department and outside of our department make fun of me, and I'm okay with it. Uh, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, the only times I would speak Spanish would be to my family. Okay. Carlos every now and then when, you know, we're around just making fun of each other or, you know, but, um, you know, if, if you don't use it, you definitely lose it. So being in detectives w- was huge for me because um, myself and the other detective who was senior to me, that was the other Spanish um, speaking detective who, you know, he was like my mentor. Like, I mean, I, I can't say, I don't, can't say enough about the guy, but he pretty much said, Hey, this is how you're going to learn to interview in Spanish doing, you know, different investigations. And, and he showed me the way and, um, yeah, I mean, he yeah. helped me out a lot. Yeah. Cause the flip side of it then is too, like you, you mentioned earlier, people saying, Oh, well you only got hired because you got 10 extra points. And Oh, okay. You can make that statement. My thing is when I got hired, I, I had a guy that I went to the academy with that was in the military and he got 10 points and I still beat him. <laughs> so that's what you got to do. You know, if, if it, and let me tell you to this day, I don't ever let him forget that oh, absolutely. because, because you gotta let him know. You know, we actually worked together <laughs> in a civilian job before we got hired. Nice. And he, he told me what he scored. And uh, I, I told him, well, it doesn't matter because I scored higher than you. Yeah. I said, that, but that's because you're a big, dumb Marine. And, <laughs> and then he almost kicked my ass. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, nice. so, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's, I think it's interesting to talk to someone like you who does speak Spanish fluently, who also had the military, like just your viewpoint on it. Because it, it, it's come up in other conversations I've had on the podcast and just yeah. with people in general. Yeah. There's a, a wide range there. So anyways. We got off on that rabbit trail. Yeah. You, you get hired by the city, 95. What was the city, what was Lancaster City like in 1995 when you got hired? So my, uh, you know, I, it just comes to being on, on my first year on the job going, oh my, this is like, it, it's intense. Like it was just running call to call to call. Um, you know, you would think, oh, everyone went back then we talked about Friday, Saturday nights, we'd just be from beginning till end running, you know, these calls, but it was not only that it was during the week as well. Like it was just nonstop, um, you know, continue, continual uh, calls coming in, uh, very few breaks. Um, it was intense. It was high pace, which I was glad for. I was learning, um, a lot of times. You know, and I know back in the day, some of the fellows got a little fired up about it. Uh, referring back to what we just spoke of in, in Spanish, I would get pulled from answering calls to go help a detective, you know, with an interpretation an or yeah. something like And, you know, but it was something that, um, you know, I just, I remember it being nonstop and, uh, you know, uh, having the old school, I say old school, the sergeants that, I mean, they were definitely, they were raised and, and did the job differently in that time. Um, and when I say that, y- you, and not that we don't, uh, 
this point, um, but back then there was just this aura about the older sergeants um, that had seen a lot. You gave them respect as soon as, I mean, as soon as they walked in, you know, for lineup, you shut your mouth and it was time for lineup. <clears throat> so, you know, just going call to call, you know, having FTOs that, you know, basically, you know, forced three of them. Um, uh, it was interesting because I had an FTO that, you know, nothing, all he wanted to do is vehicle stops. I had an FTO that all he wanted to do is look in the, the blue book, the sheriff's book back then, we, you know, the big blue book, right. and, you know, look for people that had warrants. And then a third FTO that really wanted to teach me the paperwork, how to do reports, how to do them the right way, um, and just get that aspect down, which I was so grateful for because the other two FTOs, I, I didn't, like, I didn't learn much other than vehicle stops for certain reasons to try and get drugs um, or uh, warrant stops because most of the people that were wanted on bench warrants probably had drugs on them or were involved in something. Uh, so it was nice to have the one FTO. Uh, he was my first FTO um, that you know showed me the ropes when it came to the administrative part of the learning the process went through the packet of, you know, papers. You had to do this, you had to do this. You had to, and it showed me all that. And I'm glad I had them in the beginning because when I went to the two additional FTOs, they were off the hook. Like paperwork wasn't their priority. Their priority was going out and locking up bad guys, which I was like, let's go. Because initially it was like slower than molasses, but I was learning how to do, you know, that paperwork part of the job. Right. So, but yeah, it was intense. Um, and within, you know, a couple years, like 96, 97, 98, and that they started, uh, you know, the yellow shirts, the, the SOG program, street operations group. Uh, and it was intense. Um, you know, just, you couldn't, you really couldn't go down a block in certain areas where you weren't getting out on people. I mean, I mean, it was just, and it was intense. Uh, I just remember it being a lot of fun. Um, you know, we did have, uh, um, good investigations, got, I mean, got a a lot of drugs off the street. Um, you know, and again, it was something that, you know, as much as you did all that, it was coming back the next day, but it kept you going. And of course, you know, being young and in my twenties, I loved that excitement. Like it was, it was intense. Right. And so crack would have been the big Absolutely. Out the gate. Yep. Out the gate. It was the biggest thing. Um, you know, going from, I remember seeing the vials to then the little, you know, corner bags and like just seeing how thing the balloons, there were so many different things because, you know, it's like these drug dealers, you know, they were getting smart too. And why should I carry all these vials that are, you know, in my, if you have a hundred vials when I can put them in either little balloons or uh, plastic corner and it's half the amount you know, I can hide them better. Right. I can put them in places the cops might find, not find them, so on and so forth. So, you know, crack was absolutely uh, the big thing um, you know, in the mid-90s, yeah. the late 90s there. We were just running like crazy. On yeah, that. it is interesting because when, when I came on in uh, 2000, 2001, um, technically 2001, I, was, I started the academy in 2000, but right. the um, crack was still pretty prevalent. Yeah. Um, in the, in the early 2000s and then you saw like a move to uh heroin 
and and everything like that. And then towards the end of my career, it started moving back to crack because what was happening is all the heroin was mixed with fentanyl. Yep. And so you had a ton of overdose dr- mm-hmm. deaths. And so these guys who were slinging it were starting to get hooked up for um, uh, overdose deaths. Yeah. Uh, drug drug related overdose overdose deaths where they were delivering and yeah. they were getting hemmed up. So they started moving back to crack because it didn't carry the sentences because back in school early zone. Yeah. All back in early two thousands, they had school zone enhancements. Yep. Yep. They had, if you, if you had, um, I think it was, if I remember right, two grams was an automatic state, state prison yeah, term. Absolutely. If you had two grams. Um, and people were like, Oh, that's not that much, but that was, that was a lot of money. Like that was a, a decent amount of money's worth. And, and people were getting, you know, they're getting launched, launched. Yeah. and and it it worked. Rightfully so. Yeah, yeah it, it worked. Work. It worked yeah. because it those those things is what really started to cut down on the on the violent crime because the I would violent agree. crime was was pretty high. Ramp, I think it in was the mid nineties. Yeah, and early most 2000s. intense. Yeah, yeah, during that time frame, and I like I see it coming. It's like yeah, that it's cycle. Cyclical. It's coming yeah. back, and it's just a lot of stuff right now. You're seeing as a result of not having certain ways that worked back then. Whether right, wrong, and different, like you just some of the stuff we did back then, it really worked, and I think it kept us. Um, I don't say I. I think it kept Lancaster safer than some of the other big cities around us that were blowing up, because we had like we were very proactive. We didn't react to stuff. We were proactive, um, and we just took the initiatives. And you had bosses that were like. Hey, let's run these details, but don't go out there and just hang out and make your, you know, a couple hours of overtime, get it done. Like, and when I say that, it's one of those things where, you know, we knew where the corners were. We knew a lot of the drug dealers and, you know, it, it, it was, there, it was a different attitude to absolutely. the policing. And, and cause I remember those street operations groups, we wore bright yellow yep. sweatshirts or t-shirts. Yep. Most of us wore, wore like uh, camo fatigues yep. or, or some sort of fatigue. And within like five minutes being on the street, mm-hmm. one somehow the other end of the city <laughs> knew where you had a problem would know, yep. hey, the yellow shirts are out, yellow shirts are out. Right. And, and, and there was a, it was a proactive get after it mentality. Like, hey, we got, we got guys hanging out in the corners who are, who are slinging drugs. We're going to go deal with it um, aggressively. not. Not in a, uh, a legal way. Now, I will say this. Like, so some of the tools, like you talked about some yep. of the tools, yep. like drug-related loitering. Yeah. So the city passed this ordinance called drug-related loitering, <laughs> which was awesome because we had these like high drug areas and we would have guys hanging out on the, on the corners that we knew were dealing. And it gave us a reason to kind of like a, you know, an extra way to interact with them absolutely but what happened is it got abused and yep. people were getting cited for drug related loitering when they weren't engaged in drug dealing yep. and it went away and and really that's really how any aggressive policing if you have aggressive hard charging guys absolutely they're gonna push the envelope yep for for the right reasons right i you know the majority of them will push that envelope for the right reasons because they want to make a difference they want to do the right thing but yeah that that was one of those ordinances that was so helpful. And then when it got uh, repealed, appealed, yeah. yeah, it was like kind of, you know, yeah. When that happened, I think we were all just like, oh, especially in the drug-free school zone, you know, within, yep. there wasn't, well, there's like 50 feet in the city that wasn't a drug-free school yeah. zone. And so 
you so know. all those, like, yeah, those state, state, like the mandatory sentences for the amount of drugs, the mandatory sentences for being in a school zone, those all started going away. Yep. And as those went away, you know, you you started seeing a move. Yep. Yeah, we lost the ability to do some of uh, our proactive enforcement. Um, And again, I totally understand where you're coming from. I don't ever remember being on a detail where we didn't do a stop the right way um, and affect an arrest that was um, illegal. We always made sure we had a reason to stop. Right. Um, We didn't. You know, like they said back in the day, run pockets. We didn't do that unless there was a reason to do so. And those ordinances and some of the other, um, you know, whether it was trespassing, other reasons for an arrest allowed us to further right. and then end up, you know, getting a lot of drugs off the street. Yeah, yeah. And actually, like this Asag operation was the first time I ever bought drugs undercover. It was crazy. <laughs> they just put us in this old car. <laughs> Being another officer, they said, hey, we just want you to go into, remember the intersection yep. that they called the dome? Yep, the dome. We just want you to go <laughs> into the dome and uh, buy, buy some drugs. Uh, I hit a radio underneath my seat. Um, it, it was cra- crazy. I mean, like, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was stuff literally as, as a sergeant of SEO at the end of my career. If my guys would have done that, I would have, they, they would have gotten in trouble. It was like crazy. <laughs> There's but no- it, that, like you said, it's a different policing right. back then. And what we had to do worked. And now it's nothing but electronics and. Yeah. Well, the, it, the whole, just, the whole trade has yeah. changed. Like, yeah. you know, there's no more, no more, uh, uh, pay phones. Yep. It's everything's gone to cell, cell phone, phone, uh, texting like, apps, all, apps, these things. all this just, stuff. You can set up stuff and nobody, but you and that person on the cell, other cell phone knows what's going on. And yeah. that's how do you, you know, how do you attack that proactively? Uh, you, yeah. I can't, I don't know how you can do it. Yeah. It, it changes. It definitely changes yeah. tactics. I mean, I don't know how, tactics. you know, when I was on the drug task force, you know, we did a lot. Of, I mean, I mean, uh, in a week's time we were averaging 10, 15, 20 deliveries a week. Everything was on wire. Everything was on wire using informants or ourselves. How, I mean, you can still do that, but with technology these days, I mean, people are setting up it's stuff so hard without even talking on a phone. They're just yeah. texting. So yeah. you don't have that proof per se of a setting up a deal and all, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Right. Now you said the drug, were you also part of the drug suppression unit when the city had the drug suppression unit? No. And okay. I helped, but I was never officially part of drugs DSU. I was never part of, I helped them on details. Um, I remember, uh, if they would say they were going to be dealing with somebody that spoke Spanish and someone else that spoke Spanish wasn't available, that was part of DSU. Cause back then they did have a couple officers, um, for periods of time that were on DSU. I would help out either sign up for overtime and, or uh, be contact and say, hey, you know, this night we're doing a couple uh, undercover de- uh, deliveries. It's all going to be on wire. And the, the guy uh, speaks Spanish with another guy, and you might hear stuff on the phone. And I would just translate. I'd be there telling him, okay, he said he's going here, he's going there, just to, like as a security type thing. But uh, yeah, I never worked. I was never assigned to DSU okay. all over time. So what, what, got you into drugs like what what was it about 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 it just just your experiences at the beginning of your career or was there a reason why 
you you like to focus on drugs at that you know beginning of your career and then in drug task force um you know i went from patrol to having then the canine added responsibility and the drug task force like you know I, I just had spoken to a couple members back then to include the detective that you know kind of was like a mentor to me um he was on the drug task force for a couple years and being hispanic i went to him and said hey you know you know, when you leave or, you know, people aren't, how are they going to do some of their, um, wire buys or translate or any, it'd be a good opportunity for you. Um, but I think the main reason was going to the drug task force at the time you were, it's that additional responsibility of you are not micromanaged. You run your own cases. Yeah. And I looked at, okay, if I do this for a few years, I'm going to try and get into detective division. Like for me, it was a stepping stone. Yeah. That was the main reason. Okay. You know, I, I did look back or I can look back and say that, you know, um, seeing what I saw with the, the, the street operations group and, and, you know, seeing some of these um, addicted people, I'd be like, man, it, how can we stop this? So I was like, well, maybe part of me wants to go to the drug task force to, you know, combat cr- the drugs and, and we're going to get rid of, right. it, it just, I mean, within six months of being there, I was like, this is never going to end because there's always going to be that, you know, supply and demand, uh, aspect of it. So I just, you know, uh, really looked at it as an additional, you know, uh, I guess, um, what's where I'm looking for? Like just having that additional experience, um, doing interviews, we interviewed, I, at least 90%, nine out of 10 people, uh, we'd actually get an interview. Uh, I'd sit in an interview with, uh, a retired, uh, sergeant from the city who actually was involved with the start of the, the DSU. He was with the County drug task force as a supervisor. And, uh, he really just took me under his wing and showed me, um, how to do real, real good investigations. Cause the first couple search warrants I had, I got housed on the stand. I mean, there were some attorneys, I'm not going to mention any names that I got on the stand and my search warrants, um, were destroyed, like ripped apart, decent search warrants, but I didn't know how to testify to them. I didn't know how to just really, um, make sure that I understood. Um, and that was within the first month, two months of being there. Mm-hmm. So I sat down, went in to the assistant district attorney that was assigned to the task force at that time. I sat down and I said, I'm not leaving until you explain to me everything I need to know to have a solid search warrant so that when I go to suppression for any, like anything, to include the deliveries, the wires, what am I going to get picked? Yeah. From that point forward, I can tell you, I never lost another suppression hearing. I never lost another one. Yeah. And it's because that uh, attorney just schooled me because the defense attorneys that I went up against, I felt like an idiot on the stand. Like They really picked me apart. So I learned my lesson. And that, I think, then went into uh, becoming a detective because um, I'd come back from, I think it was my second deployment or third deployment, third. Okay. Pretty sure it was my third deployment. I think I can't remember. Um, and I was told, uh, yeah, you have two options. Okay. Uh, you're going back to the shift or 
we want you to come to CID. And I'm like, huh, no brainer. I'm coming to CID. Right. Um, and that's just the way it was. Yeah. I, I was fortunate to go right from being on the drug task force to CID. Um, and with CID, I'm sorry, the drug task force at the time, uh, when we were getting in it, I mean, we were doing, there were some senior detectives there that were really, really uh, good with passing on knowledge and information. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. It was a different type of work. And again, I w- wasn't micromanaging. I did my own cases. Um, and the supervisor that I referred to before, uh, you know, people say what they want. He was old school slash wasn't a ball of fire, but I can tell you, uh, myself and the other city officer that was assigned at that time, um, there were actually two city, three city officers total, but myself and the other city officer that had, uh, been assigned, I mean, 10, 12, 15 deliveries a week, minimum, minimum. And then every now and then we'd you know, throw in a search warrant because we'd have uh, an informant that can only do buys from a location and not, you know, the delivery wouldn't wear a wire, you know, all that kind right. of stuff. Wasn't willing to testify is because there wasn't enough there to say, hey, look, you know, the ones that would testify are the ones that we're looking at, like we said earlier, these mandatory, you know, two, four, six, eight years, you know, that they were going to be doing uh, in state prison, not just, you know, out the county hanging out. Right. So, right. And just to tease out that thing you were talking about, the warrants a little bit, the warrants, you know, are good, signed by a judge, you go, you serve them, but then a uh, defense attorney can sit there and try to pick it apart uh, in what's called a suppression hearing because they try to suppress everything you've gotten with that warrant. So they, t- they pull you into a suppression hearing and they, and they say, um, you know, hey, we're trying to suppress this evidence because of this, 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 and this, and you have to sit there on the stand and defend what you put in that warrant, why you put it in there, the whole investigation, and that's that's what you were you're talking about. Yeah, in and the beginning, it was it was not just it was it was difficult because I was learning. But then again, like you mentioned, afterwards going to suppression hearings and them tearing apart, <clears throat> trying to tear apart your your deliveries and your documentation and all that. It was nice that old school sergeant. We had it down to a system like actual kind of like an outline what we need to have, you know, times of searches, times of this time. And back then, unlike now, back then <laughs> we were taking, using a 35 millimeter camera <laughs> taking, you know, and I know at one point he bought his own lens to be able to take pictures, you know, a block and a half away instead of, you right. know, so he used his own equipment uh, and we were using camcorders like to get video and we were in vehicles. This day and age, it's just, you know, you're using a lot more of, uh, you know, the cameras that are throughout the city, which, hey, by all means, use it. It, It's definitely going to prove your case. But that was brought all all brought up in suppression. And uh, I was just glad that that district attorney, assistant district attorney at the time, that uh, I got good advice. And from that point forward, I never lost another suppression. So that was good. No, that's awesome. And and in your retirement, uh, retirement thing they did on on Facebook for you. The department did up for on Facebook for you. I saw yeah. that one of your arrests. Uh, actually, I think yeah, it was in '97. So yeah. you hadn't been on the job that long. Car stop, a lot of a lot of uh, crack and some guns. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'll try and make it quick because you know it's one of those things where I was sitting there at the at the uh, Turkey Hill on South Duke Street doing paperwork, but 
a old school sergeant said, you don't just sit there and hang out and do paperwork. Run some uh, AccuTrack, the, the timing, uh, yeah. speed mm-hmm. check. Okay. So I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I hear this muffler. I mean, you could hear it. It was probably down by uh, Dagon, uh, the, the Boys and Girls Club, maybe even further south than that, you know. And you hear it coming up the hill. Whoa, you know, it's like an intense. And I'm like, but you hear the muffler. It, it's getting louder. It's increasing in speed. It's getting louder. And I'm like, I just drop the paperwork, cards back then. I think I was finishing a card. And just got on the, the little stopwatch, the Accutra, and click, click. And, you know, it's 25 mile an hour there. Right. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think I got him doing 47. It's like 47 sticks in my, and I'm like, all right, here we go. I pull out and I follow this car. He absolutely knows I'm behind him. No question about it. Turn signals, speed is barely 25, you know, doing everything to stay with. But it, it was like, number one, the muffler. Number two. I don't think he realized I got him speeding, but he was definitely flying. I made the decision to stop him on Queen Street right before uh, the, oh my gosh, right there at the corner, um, the pizza shop. And when I was calling this out, it just so happened, you know, uh, one of the uh, more respected sergeants was there within seconds. And we go to approach the car and, you know, right away, I'm like, something, something is just the guy, you know, he's turning around, looking over his shoulder. Um, the sergeant's there and he's just looking at me, gives me the eyes like, I got your, you know, I got you covered on this side. Go up, Mike, hey, uh, Officer Luciano, blah, blah, blah. The reason why I stopped you is speeding, explain everything. And man, is, what's up with that muffler? And, you know. I told him he was speeding, the reason for the stop. But I was like, hey, what's up with that muffler? He's like, listen, I understand. And this is what got me. He says, if you have to write me three or four tickets, I get it. No problem. It's my fault. Not a problem. And it, it, he was a Hispanic guy. He turned and looked and he saw my name tag and Luciano. And they started talking to me in Spanish. And I, and I was like, talked to him back in Spanish and said, you know, out of respect for my sergeant, that's all I said. Um, can you speak in English? And he did the, you know, it was like that his neck about snapped because he couldn't see, he didn't even right. know there was another officer there. Um, it just, when he said, give me as many citations as you want, I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I've never gotten that. And again, two years on the job, a year and a half. I don't, even, I don't think it was, it was like, okay. So um, he was just, what do you need? I got my this, I got that. And I give all his information, and I just take a half a step back, look at the corner, down into the rear seat, and I see uh, the bottom part of the uh, was a Tech Nine, Kel, I think it was Kel Tech Nine, yeah. basically a Uzi. Right. And I see that, and listen again, being in the military, um, you know, it just I knew exactly what it was at the time. And at that point, I was just like, you know, looked at the Sarge and I just said, hey, give me one second. But it was a step back to let him know. You know, I just gave him like a visual with my hand and pointed down and showed him. And we asked him to step out of the vehicle. He stepped out of the vehicle. When he stepped out of the vehicle, his seat moved forward a little bit. And that's when you could see a little bit of, um, it was like a, like the side chunk of 
cocaine. Okay. It was in a it was in like a a brick, but it was like a corner rock. You could see that. And you know, as soon as we saw so, that, we you know, at that point, um, long story short, we end up, you know, uh, locking him up, um having I can't I think we ended up getting a search warrant for the vehicle. Um we had help on it. Um and ended up, you know, finding yeah. the firearms and the, the drugs. And I was just like, I'll just never forget coming back to the station. And I don't know if you remember Snoop. Uh, we called him Snoop. He was no. a reporter from the Lancaster newspaper. Always okay. around. Always around. Yep. yep. This guy shows up at the, at the garage. And that's how this picture that I had that I showed you, I got it, you know, when I retired, right. they put a picture. He's, hey, did you, I heard, Ed, and he's going nuts. Going, I'm like, yeah. And he goes, can you, sh-? I'm like, hang on. I go back and I can't remember if it was which lieutenant it was. I say, hey, am I okay to do this? Because I'm not trying to show. He goes, yeah, absolutely. I laid it all up in the upper garage on top of his vehicle, laid it out. He took a picture and he said, hey, can you stand there next to him? I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. I went in. I said, hey, am I okay to? And they're like, yeah, sure, rookie, go ahead. You know, because I've only been on. Right. So I stood there. They took a picture and man, you know, I Kool Aid smile on and I like, you know, I just. Sweet mustache. It was, it was huge. Oh, that mustache. That's, I'm going to bring that back, I think. Uh, no, that is, that is a huge arrest. Huge. Eight, eight ounces of crack is thousands and thousands of dollars. Huge arrest. I, like, I went, when I started with the drug task force, my first couple hits weren't that big. You know, and yeah. So it was, yeah, it was huge. And I rode on that for, you know, a, a couple weeks. <laughs> and then everyone was like, okay, uh, you know how you always say you're, you're only as good as your last search warrant? Right. Well, I'd, they're like, oh, and then my next, I think my next arrest was like a, you know, possession of small marijuana or something <laughs> like, and you know, people made fun of me and I'm like, Hey, whatever. And, yeah. but that it was just exciting. It was like, you know, to, to get a big hit like that was, For sure. was awesome. Yeah. So. I mean, and, and those, those arrests don't, you don't just see them. No. You know, you, they usually come with those just minor things that you're speeding, you're running yeah. speed. And next yeah. to, you know, leads one to his comments of give me as many tickets as you want. I'll yeah. never forget that. Yeah. You know, obviously that was a huge arrest. Any other impactful incidents or events that stick out in your, in your career? Yeah. I mean, um, like I told you, when you had asked me to, to, you know, come be on the podcast, I was like, it's kind of, kind of neat. And I just went through a, a file that I had, I, you know, has a ton of stuff, paperwork clippings on. And uh, I had found this one that, again, that sergeant that helped me on that stop, um, him and I responded. It was to a domestic disturbance. Got there and, you know, like I talked to you about it, it you know, when I saw the article earlier today, it kind of hit me pretty hard. Because uh, I truly believe if I would have been 30, maybe 45 seconds sooner Mm -hmm. there it was domestic so getting there and this woman's out on her front lawn hysterical and again that sergeant 30 seconds behind me pulls up and we're just trying to figure out what's going on right she basically tells us i mean we can get out of her that uh baby's daddy just showed up and took um their baby and took off and was like, you know, she was hysterical, um, you know, and you could tell just by the way it was hysteria. Like she was just like losing her mind 
And we were like, you know, how old's, and she basically, it's a, it's a baby. And it ended up being like an eight month old baby. And she was just going nuts. Like we couldn't, we had to figure out, we're able to get from her, you know, make and model a vehicle. We get the name and that he just north on, uh, Queen street. So, you know, uh, the Sergeant says, stay here, get more information. I'm going after this car. So he leaves, he takes off. Um, as the information's coming out, she's basically saying something about, and I didn't know the whole story, but after the fact that he had something that happened at work, I don't know if he had gotten fired or what happened at work, but he was just like, just not in a good place, came over her plate, got in an argument with her and took the baby. Uh, so I hear the sergeant calling out that uh, he thinks he sees the vehicle and they're going out of our jurisdiction and they end up going um, towards Mannheim. The officers, uh, our sergeant stays back and lets you know the jurisdictions ahead of him take over. Uh, well, this guy ends up, um, as he's driving, uh, there's witnesses that say they see him uh, pouring, looks like he's pouring something all over the car with some type of you know canister container, whatever you want to call it. Um, we find out after all this that he in fact was pouring uh, gas on he's pouring gas on the baby um, and himself uh, lights himself and the baby on fire. While and they're driving? While they're driving and ends up uh, crashing. And it's just, a, they say it's a, a you know, ball of fire. Um, they really aren't able to do anything. And, right. you know, both uh, uh, him and the baby end up dying. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was one that hit pretty hard. And it's just, you know, you, you beat yourself up. Like it even says, I remember I was sitting at home reading this today and it said, uh, the officer, it said my name and the sergeant went back to work that day. Yeah. Dude, I can tell I went back to work that day. I wasn't there. Yeah. I wasn't there. All I was thinking about was if I would have been there seconds earlier, could that, and I'll be honest, I, I could give two craps about him. Right you know, we could have saved that baby. So yeah. that one yeah. sticks with me. And, you know, uh, we had a conversation, you know, with the military um, and with our line of work being in law enforcement. Um, and, you know, former chief had talked about it a lot with PTSD. And I remember some of these things like that happening, which absolutely is going to stick with you forever. I mean, um, a lot of people uh, probably don't know, but um, yeah, I was diagnosed with PTSD from, uh, serving in Iraq, my first deployment. And, you what know, year, what year was it? that yeah. was, uh, man, 2003. Okay. When we first went over. Okay. When I came back from that, um, you know, and it's the stuff from law enforcement that's PTSD. I'm here to tell you it's, it's very, very similar. Like you can't tell me. I, we, uh, there's guys and girls that we've worked with that if you 
If they were to walk up to me after certain incidents they've been to and say they are not affected or traumatized by it, they're lying. They're lying through their teeth. It's always going to be there. And yes, we all have, you know, machoism, you know, type A personality. We can handle it our own way. And there are people that, that are able to cope and deal with it, so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, here I am, you know, you're, yeah. years that, later looking 98? at this. Yeah. And it's just, that's still with me and how it affects me. And I go back to, you know, 2003 and the stuff that I saw, you know, <laughs> driving from Kuwait in a convoy into Iraq and just looking over to the left and to the right out of the back of a uh, five-ton truck mm-hmm. uh, that was just, we were stacking sandbags as high as we could to have protection because we didn't have up-armored vehicles. Right. And, you know, seeing, you know, dead bodies laying on the ground going, this is real. This is no joke. So, you know, I've heard, and I'm so grateful um, that I've heard this is, is in the works, um, that the FOP is trying to get this whole thing with, uh, you know, uh, counseling and, and awareness for PTSD and in law enforcement. I mean, I'm sure it's, it could be a nationwide thing, and I'm sure there's people that have it already, but I think there's officers that have dealt with stuff that they haven't, you know, ask for help or I don't know if they're, are they afraid? Like, you know, who cares? Like ask for help because the reality is, and I can tell you for a fact because of people that I know that were in the military that are no longer with us Mm -hmm. because they took their own life. um, They absolutely were traumatized by what they saw, whether it was the first, second, third, whatever deployment they were on, something they saw traumatized them enough to where they started having issues. you know, I had the opportunity on my uh, second deployment to come back from Iraq the second time, and they actually set you down. And this time they said, hey, we want to talk to you. And it was a professional, actual someone that was a doctor and or a, a, a mental or I'm sorry, a mental health or crisis work, someone that was qualified. Okay. Sat down, talked to you and said, hey, we need to talk about this then the other. Do you need help? If and this was do, through the military. Through the military. If you need help, we're, gonna, we're not going to send you home without making sure that there's follow-up to it. Because there were guys that stayed at Fort Dix, at McGuire Air Force Base. They call it Joint, Air, Joint Base something. I can't remember. They stayed. And we all, a lot of us went home because they were more, they were affected more and had severe issues that they were dealing with. I ended up talking about what happened in 03 and just giving a little bit of the information of stuff I saw and things I had dealt with. And they said, are, are you okay? Like, can we just talk to you a little bit more about this? Sure. Had an hour conversation. And then I was referred to the Lebanon VA to get uh, like peer mentoring, mm-hmm. going to groups, counseling, talking about this stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things where I think... I kept it and I didn't talk about it much when I came back because honestly, nobody asked. I, very few people said, Hey, what'd you do over in Iraq? Blah, blah. And I don't know if it's because our coming back to cops, you know, type A personality, them thinking, Oh, I don't want to talk to him about it or bring it up because maybe it will trigger him or something like that. I just didn't talk about it and kept a lot of stuff in. But when I came back and went to the VA the second time is when I was like, Wow, 
oh three, you know, there's some things that happened that I saw that, you know, messed me up in a way that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and then <clears throat> going back uh, again, my final tour, I think it was uh, eleven or twelve, I can't remember, to Afghanistan. It's kind of like, why did I do it? Well, I can tell you, no question about it. Give my sons my benefits for the uh, education. My sons both got two and a half years of college for free. Okay. I transferred my benefits. The only way you could do that was in a combat zone serving, you could transfer your benefits. So I did that so that, you know, they could get that benefit. And uh, coming back from that, because I was a PSD, personal security detail for a two-star general, I was basically his bodyguard. And then I had a team of others, uh, soldiers, uh, 11 total, I think, 11 or 12. Um, We had to keep him alive for yeah. one year in Afghanistan. And let me tell you, you talk about till this day, there are times when something will happen just in my surroundings that it'll just, I'll be like, what was that? Like, it'll, cause you ha- your head had to be on a swivel. Right. And it's weird because I say this, some people understand it. Some people say, yeah, that's a bunch of baloney. I just, it's my opinion. When I was in Iraq, I knew like, there's the enemy. When I was in Afghanistan, we had been there for so many years and we had so many relationships with Afghani people. I didn't know who the enemy was. We were going in towns where I'm like, you know, we're going through these towns and you're seeing trucks full of civilians with AKs just hanging out. And we're like, do we have to engage? Do we have to be ready? And we drive by and they're waving, you know, and then the next day we don't see them there, but we see. Uh, another truck, and just the way it's positioned, we're like, whoa, whoa, let's let's go around, let's go a different route, thinking it might be you know a vehicle-borne IED, you know, right. an improvised explosive device. So that Afghanistan led to anxiety um, and just being on like always wondering what's going on. And when I came back from that, um, again, and it's something that I'm I talk about because I think it's therapy for me. It's I had to go on medication. Uh, and all it was, was the lowest dose. Cause I told him, Hey, I'm in law enforcement. Right. And I have to be able to take this at night when I'm sleeping. So it doesn't affect me. So they gave me like the lowest dosage of anti-anxiety medication that I could take. I took it for like three, four months. And then gradually every two to three days, I'd take one skip and I eventually got off of it. But if I wouldn't have had that, I probably wouldn't have been able to come back to the job. Yeah. And you know, but the help was there. And I'm going to say from my perspective, Lebanon VA, outstanding. They've d- phenomenal job for me. So, so to this day, do you go to meetings and stuff there? Is that one so, of the ways you, you manage stuff? So or? I haven't gone in a very, very long time. And I probably should, for the sake of going to those meetings to help others, like talk about stuff that they're dealing with. Um, you know, several years back on the job, like I started getting involved, uh, I got involved with veterans court and just tried to help out there. But with work kids and the job, like I was only able to help out, I mean, very minimal. And some of those veterans were coming back just messed up and how they handle it, alcohol or drugs. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get hemmed up in that environment. And then they don't want to talk to anybody unless they're military because that's how they relate to people. And you could discuss with them because I could say, hey, back in 03, man, let me tell you, this is what I went through. 
And you know what? There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's talk about what you went through and we can discuss and, you know, work some, and you start to create that relationship. Right. So it's been, it's been probably, oh, it's been a couple years. Um, and again, I think I mentioned to you, you know, my uh, wife is still in the military. Um, and it was nice to have somebody I could speak to that I could relate because she went on the deployment in 2008, uh, mm-hmm. the second time to Iraq. So she saw, um, she did, we ran a detention facility over there in Baghdad. And so she saw the worst of the worst when it came to um, EPWs, enemy prisoners of war. And then they, you know, trying to f- classify them, figure out, are they going to be put back into the population? Or it was just, honestly, I, my personal opinion was a mess because how do you do research on these people? Right. <laughs> there's no records. There's no, there's no, oh, run his, uh, check his, if he has warrants or arrests. Uh, right. You don't have that. There's, there's nothing. Nothing. No, we brought in. A local from Baghdad area and from other areas where these people were picked. Hey, does this name sound familiar? And we don't know. Well, he's was caught with a car full of weapons, munitions, blah, 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 whatever. They don't know what to do. So, you know, it's one of those things where just all that stuff that happened over there, it was just, um, it's pretty intense. I'm, you know, and I, I talked to her about that on occasion. If something pops up, if something happens, um, and she'll tell you, like, very rare um, do we go to places where there's a lot of people. And if there are a lot of people, um, you know, she can see it. I know she can. And I, like, I catch myself. Like, and some people uh, here that live, you know, still in the area, they don't go to Park City. They don't go to the right. mall. They don't go here they, because of large crowds. I, I don't like going to those places yeah. either because yeah. it just, it, it kind of just touches something like. Yeah. So anyway. I think it's, I think it's inter- interesting. I don't know if that's the right, right word. Cause I, you know, when you came back from, um, some of those tours, I think in 2003, I didn't know you very well. Uh, you know, when you did your first tour there, but you know, when you got back from Afghanistan, there were some other guys that had been in Afghanistan, yeah. some guys that I trained that yeah. had been in Afghanistan. Um, yeah. And I, I never, it's it's interesting. I think most people generally thought like the way I thought. You don't want to, you don't want to like push push guys to talk. Yeah. You don't want to. You know. You know. You don't know what they they went through. You don't know, and you don't want to be like, hey man, how was it over there? Like what you know. But I think it's important to hear what you said. That just someone coming up to you and saying, hey, glad you're back. Glad you're okay. You know what kind of stuff did you have to deal with over there? And let the person decide if they want to talk about it or not. Absolutely. I yeah. think if someone would have came at me that way, I'd, you know, we'd be talking for hours if they'd want to listen for yeah. hours. Um, and it's therapeutic for me because I can like get things off, you know, my chest or just talk about things that, you know, I maybe wouldn't have talked to with someone else, but because I know in the next minute we might go out on a call for a robbery or a shooting. Right. And we could, you know, be there for each other. I would be willing to open up to you than someone else. Because a lot of people ask me, well, you, you won't open up to anybody unless they're in the military. That's not true. Okay. And even to this day, like, I think if more people, even with, you know, people at the department now, if someone were to say, hey, um, I remember, like, you were deployed back and said, you know, you okay with talking about it? Because if you are, I'd like to, you know, can you tell me about what you did? Um, because people do hold, like, I think they hold things in. 
and they don't talk about it because, oh, you know, don't let your guard down. Don't be considered weak per se. And, right. You know, it's one of those deals where, I mean, everyone has their own opinions of it. Um, I had several people up in CID and detectives that it was like running jokes with certain people that were in the military that didn't deploy or were in the military and would talk highly of it and this, and they did that. And it. But then they, a Luciano was deployed to Kosovo, Iraq, twice Afghanistan, one, and seen uh, all this. And he doesn't really talk much about it. And you're up here yip-yapping and talking a bunch. And where did, what did you do? Right. And they say that. And my response would be like, hey, you know, I would joke about it and say, well, we always need support personnel. You know, we can't go over there without somebody sending us stuff from the States and joke about it that way. But then eventually go to the person and say, hey, look, man, you know, understand that I know you would never get that from me. And I think it's just a joke having a good time with it. But some people might take it differently. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for that too sometimes. Because yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes, you know, guys, you know, like to beat their own chest. And usually the ones who have actually been in it, uh, you know, won't, won't talk about it a lot. Yeah. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, when I said at the beginning that, you know, you're, you're a highly decorated, you know, um, combat veteran, three of those things I was talking about are you got three bronze stars. And so I don't know a lot about bronze stars, but what I know is they don't just kind of hand them out like candy. So, yeah. Um, can you, know, you talk, can I can you talk relate <laughs> about any, any yeah. of those, any of those bronze stars? And, yeah. And what I mean, you to get? I can tell you that, um, it was something that I, I truly believe that. And this is just like, you don't expect to be, a, it's not, you don't do it for the awards, for right. the ribbons. Um, if you do, then you're that one that's probably going to fall first when something happens because people are, they just know you're out for your own glory. Um, in 03, I was a uh, platoon sergeant. And when I look at 03 with everything we went through and the stuff we were involved in, uh, again, not getting into too much of the details. And listen, I can tell you, I wa- this wasn't like the movies combat. Um, there was times where we were shot at um, and we had to deal with that. There were people that were injured. Um, you know, and to go much further than that, um, my biggest thing with that deployment is I got everyone home alive. That was the biggest thing. Making sure that your soldiers made it home. So that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And the biggest thing with that was, you know, you, we had uh, Chaplain Ellis. I mean, just every day I think about him. He, every convoy we went out on, every mission, you name it. Chaplain Ellis, we're heading out. Uh, our um, estimate time for the convoy is 2 a.m., 0200. Without hesitation, that's all I'd say. He'd go, I'll be there. He would come out, and I'm telling you, you always talk about people that the only time they believe in God is when they think they could be killed or, you know, uh, be put in harm's way. Um, the entire convoy, and we had some pretty hardcore dudes that the entire convoy, when Chaplain Ellis said a prayer for us before we would head out, you, I mean, you're in the middle of the desert. We were in uh, Anasaria, uh, Tilio Air Base is where we were at. You, you, 
drop, drop a pin in the sand. If it would make a noise, you would have heard it. Everybody listened to his prayer. And that was something that, you know, till this day, like, you know, I've seen him. It's been a couple years since I've seen him, but, you know, he always came out and said a prayer for us. And, you know, I was, again, born in, uh, in, in, and raised Roman Catholic. But, um, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, being forced, really, really forced, uh, from the, uh, the, the culture slash my parents to real, I mean, you ha- have to go to church. You have to do this. You have to, the 10 commandments. And, you know, I still believe, um, and appreciate my mom doing that and my, my parents raising me in that environment. Uh, but some of these people, it, it kind of annoyed me that they would, sh- they would keep it quiet. As soon as the chaplain went away, they'd be, you know, doing things that really weren't uh, appropriate. Uh, but, you know, I looked at that and always like that was priority to me. And I don't, maybe it's just, you know, the way I felt, I always wanted a prayer for us and for us to get back safely. Mm. And maybe nine out of 10 missions and we had hundreds. So 900 out of or 999 or whatever, uh, Chapinellis, as soon as he heard we were coming back or he would ask, when's your estimated time of arrival back on base, he would be there and he would be greeting us. Hey, we made it again, guys. You know that it was just so, um, you know, energetic and like he, he truly made, and I think it was a couple people after they got shot at, started to realize that, you know, there's, there's something that you need to think about in life and it's not yourself. It's a higher calling to understand that in an instant, like snap your fingers mm-hmm. and, um, it'll be your life, you know, and, and how you went through life and who knows, but that 2003 deployment, when I received a bronze star, um, I truly believe is because we got everyone home safely. And, um, I say that we had people that had issues that, that suffered from different, you know, mental health problems, Mm -hmm. but they still came home. Uh, not our battalion, but another company that was within our battalion that was attached to us. Uh, they lost a couple people, um, uh, to suicide. Um, and I think one, if I remember correctly, one was in theater actually in Iraq. And then when they went back home to their state, it wasn't in Pennsylvania, they lost, I think, if I remember correctly, two people. Wow. So that one, uh, I truly, absolutely like I would wear that one proud and for someone to say you didn't deserve it, uh, we're probably going to go blows. Uh, (laughs) and my soldiers, I, we had a reunion. It's been, I think we're coming up on a reunion next year. Um, yeah, 23 from 2003. So 20 years. Wow. Uh, we're getting together. Um, and, uh, I'm grateful. They're all still alive. Everyone's still doing well, families on and so forth. And we have a lot of stories. That one was truly like, it was a wake up. It was my first combat tour and like, oh my, this is, this is no joke. Um, and for me having the chapel in there, it was just a little bit more comforting. Um, you know, I still, uh, would say prayers for myself, my family, my platoon, and the prayers for my family were, Hey, I hope to go out make it back so I can make it back to them. Um, so that one was absolutely like, I truly like 
feel deserving of that one. I'm, I'm grateful for our battalion commander putting that one up through the chain of command. And, and there, was only, there was only a few, handful that got bronze stars. Um, and there was no, I don't know if you're aware, that you have a V device for Valor and okay. uh, H device for Heroism on it. I don't have either one of those devices. This was just given to me um, for, awarded to me based upon what I did there. Uh, nothing was deemed valor or heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people that have those that, man, if you read their backstory, unbelievable. Like right. literally saving lives and so on and so forth. I feel I saved lives, but in a different way. Um, 2008, um, that one was uh, when we went to Baghdad and ran the detention center. Uh, and I forgot to tell you in 2003, our unit, um, when they caught Saddam Hussein, we actually guarded him. No kidding. Yeah, our unit, um, he came into our compound. Um, we were woken up in the middle of the night. It was myself and uh, th- two other soldiers, senior. We were both all E7s, seven first class at the time, and just brought to the uh, battalion talk, um, the command center, and basically told to go get people. I had Tariq Aziz. Unbelievable. I went, got Tariq Aziz, came back with them. They escorted us. One other uh, sergeant had, um, I always say their name, I don't know their full name, uh, Chemical Ali. Okay. He was the, the, the guy that, uh, the Kurds, he used the mustard gas yep. on the Kurds. And then the one other sergeant had, uh, if you look at all of Saddam's pictures, there's always a guy that's next to him. He's like his personal bodyguard. Okay. Huge. My mustache, it, terrible. <laughs> this guy had the like mega caterpillar bush. He's there. He took him. Okay. We had to actually take them. And I tell the story. It just hit me. Like, I wanted to tell the story. Um, we, had, we went, it went underground bunker. Underground bunker. We were like, what is going on? And we got to this room in the underground bunker. And I saw all these, you know, no question, uh, SF. You know, they're, they're special right. forces. So they're head to toe. You can t- they have be- full beards. Like, you know, they're definitely, there's no question, they're operators. Right. Um, coming in, running around, walking this and, and I look over and there's General Sanchez, four star. And I'm like, what is going on? I, as soon as I saw him, I knew him because, you know, it, it just, I caught his picture. I knew he was the, one of the right. main people in charge. He comes into the room. They, uh, he says, three of you out in the hall. We go out in the hallway and he says, tonight we've made history. That's all he had to say. I already knew. Right. I already knew. If you say anything to anyone, I think he said within the next 24 to 48 hours. Hopefully it was just that. because Your career will end. Wow. And we're like four-star general, and we're all, actually two of us were E7s. One was an E6. It, our careers are done. Like, right. literally, you're done. And it was basically the reason I could say that, national security. Right. Um, because we did have access to internet. We did make phone calls, satellite. But sure. you will not say anything until you hear about it and you will hear about it. And we're just standing there. He, he walks away. We go back into the room one at a time. I was first. I took Tariq Aziz. I was escorted with an interpreter. Now, Tariq Aziz knew English better than you and I. He spoke on behalf of Saddam for his regime okay. in English. Like he, Oh, the only Christian in Saddam's regime. I'm pretty sure he was the only Christian. Yeah, I think that was his another claim to fame. Interesting. Yeah. 
you'll have to check that. I'm pretty sure it's, he was Christian. He wasn't Arabic. Okay. Meaning, um, he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't study Islam. I, there's something had to do with his religion. Okay. Um, so him and I walk into a, a room, but prior going into another room, and that room had CCTV, the closed circuit TV. Um, we walk by a door and I look over the Time magazine that has a picture of Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. with the Navy corpsman going through his beard. I looked over and I'm telling you, that's what I saw. The Navy corpsman going through his beard and we kept walking. And we go into the room and they turn on the TV so that Tariq could see. Now, Tariq had Coke bottle glasses. You ever see him uh, Google him? He always wore glasses thicker than he adjusted his glasses and he was like, no, it cannot be. It cannot be. And he kept saying that. And I'm like, I keep my mouth shut and the OGA other government agency people that were there uh <laughs> they wanted it was a, a a form of um like psyops like they wanted to be able to show show him what yeah that Saddam had been captured right and i'm just looking at the tv and i'm like i can't the ace of spades has been captured we couldn't believe it cuz we had the wow. deck of cards right we take everybody back they did the same with the other two um prisoners to, and that night, our compound, off the hook, it spread like wildfire. And a lot of the people in the compound who were higher people in ba- the Ba'ath Party and Saddam's regime, they didn't believe it until they heard Tariq and those people and his body that, I mean, he was there with U.S. Wow. soldiers. So anyway, that was a, a huge thing for our unit um, for sure. in 03. And then 08, we just ran the facility. Um, I know you say they hand them out like candy. Um, I, I believe, said they don't hand them yeah, out like candy. Well, I believe <laughs> in 08, I did a job. I was in charge of uh, the, they called it IRF, <laughs> Internal Reaction Force. So basically, let's just, the way to relate it, county prison has a reaction team on the inside. Right. Ours was on the inside as well, but our compounds, we had thousands of people. And we would react if there was an escape, if there was a riot, you name it. Right. So I ran that team for the entire tour that I was there. I never went outside okay. the green zone in Baghdad. So we were pretty safe, per mm-hmm. se, but we were dealing with people that honestly wanted, wanted to kill us. Um, there was a, a group of people called, I think they call them the Fury. They wanted to, they, if they basically you had to have... They had to be in cuffs, shackles, and you had to have like four soldiers at it because they basically said if they were they if, given a chance, if they had the opportunity, they would, through through translators they would kill any American, didn't matter who. Wow! So we ran that facility. Um, my wife, she actually was uh, NCO, non commissioned officer, staff sergeant. She was a shift supervisor for the special housing unit. So the worst of the worst, she was running that facility inside our big facility. We never went over there. They had their own small reaction team because of the amount of people we had to deal with. They handled everything. So she uh, handled that. Um, I believe because of my work ethic, my job, my position, right? um, I believe that's why I was awarded a bronze star for for that one. So 
to say it was kind of hand. I mean, I did a good, but 2003, absolutely. 2008, eh. Yeah. But then again, if someone took the time and wrote up the accommodation and felt that I was deserving of it and it has to be approved by a colonel. Right. Yeah. You know, so. And then you had a third one too. Third right? was Afghanistan. That's okay. the when I was in charge of personal security detail for a two star general. Um, and uh, I was able to pick my team, which the battalion commander, lieutenant colonel, said, Hey, at that time I was a first sergeant. So I was an E8 in charge of a company. He said, Hey, we have this opportunity. Would you be interested? I'm like, Eh, you know, I don't know if I want. And then I found out. That if I would go, I could transfer my benefits to my sons. Okay. Yeah. No brainer. I just said, I'm yeah. doing it. I ended up going. Um, <clears throat> different environment. When I say that, uh, I wasn't an officer, but I was given what's called command authority. So I was treated like a captain, like an actual officer. Yeah. Only on paperwork, not by rank. Right. But when I got there, the general uh, was no joke and basically told all his staff, which was uh, all colonels, that he called me Lucky. He said, Lucky's here. He's here uh, for the next year. He's going to keep me alive and his team. If he tells you to do something, you do it. And I just stood there. I'm like, oh, my God. He just told colonels that I'm supposed to tell him what to do. That, and I took that the right way. I knew I still absolutely respected those colonels. And when I got there, I just... It was a whole different world. That was kind of like a, a final going out type, come back and retire, because it was my time. At that point, I had done, I mean, 88 to 2017. So yeah, I'd done a long time. And when I say that, I did the three and three quarters years active. The rest was all reserve time. But I had all those deployments, so right. those count as active duty time. So I did that tour. and. You know, you have a two-star general that comes back and said, you know what? Uh, he actually sat me down and said, Lucky, you know, um, it's one of those things where we went through a lot of areas. Um, there might have been a couple times that we were shot at and we just trucked through. Um, I truly deserve that you, and it was like three, two, three others, um, uh, were awarded the Bronze Star. So again, I did a, I brought my team home and him, kept him alive. And you talk about the missions. I mean, we went everywhere. Uh, we were in Kabul. That's NKC, National Kabul Compound. Right across from us was uh, the compound that housed the embassy, uh, President Karzai's residence, like yeah. uh, all the multinational forces. That's where they were. We were across the street. We'd get in our convoy, go around Masood Circle, come around and swing in the backside. So it was like, an eighth of a mile, but that was just daily stuff. And there had been attacks in that area there right. on convoys. We would go other areas. And when I say other areas, we had the opportunity. I got on um, General um, Petraeus. Petraeus. I got on his jet on a detail with the two-star okay. and another. I brought another soldier with me. We flew to different parts of Afghanistan. It was just unbelievable. Right. So. Staying alive and making sure we kept him alive and coming back and just, um, I was awarded the Bronze Star for that one. Yeah. I think the, the common theme I hear throughout your, your service in the military and those, and those combat tours you did is, I don't think 
you know, it's, it's, you know, it's easy for people to listen to this and be like, oh, okay. To, to understand just a little bit, the amount of angst involved in that to be on a tour going out back and forth, back and forth, having a, a chaplain pray every time you go out every time, you know, the, the angst of that and not knowing if you're going to be able to go out and come back in one piece, the angst involved at being basically in a prison with a bunch of people that want to kill you, the angst of being in charge of a unit that is protecting another person, going everywhere they're going and not knowing who friendlies or enemies are, like that is a lot of stress. Yeah, absolutely. And, <laughs> and you know, in talking to you the little bit that I have, I can tell, you know, how much that, that war on you and whether or not you believe you, you know, whether or not whatever people believe about the bronze stars, people in charge, people that you were in charge of protecting and, and in charge of getting home saw fit to give them. So, um, I yeah. And I'm grateful yeah, you know, absolutely. Am that I was awarded them because, uh, you know, I've was able to show my sons that and my daughters and, you know, I have, so I have my class A uniform and can still wear it. Um, and then, you know, it's nice because I was at the end, they give you your retirement award. So I received an retirement award and I can't remember, I think it's a, uh, MSM. It, it's equivalent kind of to a bronze star, but that is for your entire service. And yeah. that one, like that, it's like, when you get that, you're like, I'm done. I did my service to my country. And to be quite honest with you, and I've always talked about this, not that certain people in my life want to hear it. I'd get a phone call tomorrow and say, this is where you're going. You're going to be in charge of a unit, a company. I know it would be hard, of course, because my daughters, my sons are a little older, but um, just knowing my wife, because she's still in, she uh, can be, she'll have 20 years in next year. Um, I know there would be no hesitation. Like I'd be like, I'm going to serve. That's right. it. Yeah. Yeah. So. No, awesome um, conversation, man. There, there's like, I'm looking at my outline. There's other stuff on here. The one, the one story <laughs> I did want to talk about before, before I let you have a final word All right. is your, your dad. We talked about your dad oh, at the beginning right. yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of the episode um, and some of the things he instilled. <laughs> and when he was the owner of that store at King and Mulberry in the city, he, how many times was he robbed at that store? Um, if I remember correctly, he was robbed twice. Okay. I was going to say at least twice. Yeah. Both times, uh, it was strong arm. So one was, uh, a gun and one was a knife. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So what, um, there was one robbery where, where he was, he was hurt. Yeah. He got stabbed. Um, and I, I till this day, what year was that? I can't remember. I'll be honest with you. That's so it was, long ago. it was, we have the, the article. Okay. My dad has the article. I was on the job. I remember being at the scene, but mm-hmm. I think I was peripheral at the scene. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't even remember what I, this was, was the gentleman that came in, threatened my dad, um, went behind the counter and actually took my dad's, he was using a fishing fillet, a filleting knife excuse me, to like open cardboard, cut cardboard boxes on, and he just put it on the side of the register. He took that knife when my dad couldn't get the register open fast enough, and he stabbed my dad under the armpit on his oh, man, left bad. side, 
And according to uh, the doctors, when he got to the ER, um, half inch. So think about that. A right. half inch um, more, and he would have pierced his heart. Wow. They showed on the uh, um, x-rays that the knife, it, it went in like it hit the rib cage mm-hmm. on the angle that it couldn't go any further. Okay. If he would have turned the knife, it would have went through. Wow. And it would have pierced. There's no question it would have pierced his heart. So my dad was stabbed. Um, that guy, um, as he was fleeing, uh, my dad pulled out his 357 snub-nosed, uh, um, oh my God, I can't remember if it was a Colt. I bought him a 357 Magnum. Okay. And he said he, he remember, you know, he was basically slumped over and he had just been stabbed and he remembers pointing it at the guy and he said he was, you know, we're going to pull the trigger as the guy was turning because he thought he was going to come back. And he tried to pull the trigger and it kind of, it just stopped. He couldn't pull the trigger. I don't know. You know, if he was just physically unable to, whatever it was, but the guy got away, they ended up catching him and he was convicted of that. Um, they were going to go to trial and then he ended up taking uh, a de- I think it was 25 years because he had a, it's like the third strike or he had several felonies. Yeah. So, and I remember that because it was uh, uh, a detective back then for the city. Now I think he's, he's with the county. He brought the charges and it ended up being either take the 25 or we're going to trial because, I mean, it was a slam dunk. Um, I say that, but you know how that is. So um, the funny thing about that one, and I'm pretty sure it was that one. If not, it was the other time he was involved. I can't remember. I want to say it might have been the other time. But that one for sure, um, we, no, it would have been the second time. That one. It happened, all said and done. The second time he was robbed, um, he actually pulled his gun out and he showed it and the kid, it was a kid, juvenile, took off and went into the umbrella works and then we ended up getting him there. Right. I was actually there that day. Um, and the reason I'm bringing up this story is there's a detective that came in. Uh, he no longer works for the city. He went to the state. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I'm sure those out there that hear this will know the detective I'm talking about. Uh, and I'll just add, he was violent crimes, <clears throat> uh, that showed up and said, you know, and I was there, he's Mr. Luciano, what happened? Can you tell me? And my dad, well, he came in and he wanted this and you know, he was going to come behind. So I just grabbed my gun and my dad shows, he I just grabbed my gun. I went like this. And he pointed it at the detective. <laughs> and the detective's like, whoa, whoa, Mr. Luciano, no, no. And I'm like, dad, what are you doing? Loaded, still, like, my dad's like, oh, you know, just not thinking anything of it. Right. Till this day, if you talk to that detective, he will tell you it's just unbelievable. Like, your dad pointed a gun at me. Like, right. what's going on? And the reason I bring that one up, not only because of that being somewhat comical, but... um. My dad said he actually pulled the trigger and the, the hammer came back a little bit, but it wouldn't go any further. He hadn't cleaned that gun since the last <laughs> robbery to make sure it worked. Right. I had to take it to a local gun dealership to be, um, for them to clean it for it to be operational. It would have not fired. Wow. They tried to fire it, of course, without rounds. I mean, right. To f- for functionality, 
it was so gunked up and messed up with dirt. My dad, when he would leave, he would put it either in his back pocket or in a small uh, holster that he had, and it would go in his pants. The gunk and the dirt, and it, right? My dad, he never cleaned. I was always the one that would clean the weapon, and I just hadn't done it, and it would have never fired. And they said when we went and picked it up, it was working, functioning. He says, you know, we tried to fire test. Couldn't do it. We could not pull the hammer back. So two funny stories out of that. But yeah, my, my dad, um, and I always told him like, you know, it wins enough enough. And he's just, what, what are they going to do? You know yeah. what I mean? He just, yeah. that's the way he was. He didn't yeah. care. He's Cause like, I think yeah. after, after those, you were kind of on him like, Hey dad, maybe it's time to pretty much. And, those. uh, you know, one thing about that, and you know, that area there, um, people can say what they want to say, the support they gave him because I mean, he's a fixture. He was a fixture there. Like right. even the new owners now, they're a Dominican family out of New York. Excellent people. My dad sold it to them. It's been several years now. Um, they still think at times when my dad goes there just to stop in and say hi, they'll come in and say Luciano, you know, and they think he still like owns it when he he doesn't. <laughs> right. he like doesn't. he sold it to them. But yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad. Uh, I mean that. That that first when he got stabbed, I I thought I was like, is he gonna make it? Because I didn't. He was at the hospital when I yeah. ended up going there. I didn't know. I knew it was severe and it was bad, but I didn't think it was as bad yeah. as when we got there. I mean, they basically said, yeah. Um, I can't remember if it was Doc Rehart or who it was that attended to him, but said, yeah, if the night because the the um, X ray showed he had like a a chip in his rib in cage. This. Yeah, so, so if it would have just been turned just a little different. He he could have, I mean, and that's a fillet knife. You know how yeah. it was. Yeah. I mean, it would have went through, so. Wow. But yeah, that happened yeah. to my dad. Well, that was, the, that was the one story. I teased it on the <laughs> on the last low expectations. I was oh, like, well, it's, I definitely, definitely have to. I didn't, I didn't talk about it at all. I just said, uh, you know, yeah. you know, Gary was like, oh, is he going to talk, tell that story about his, I'm like, yeah, he's going to tell a story about his dad, <laughs> at least if I can get him to. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was like, well, I got to get that in here at the end. But yeah. no, I really appreciate you coming on and, and uh, talking to me. Um, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll say it again. I always appreciated working with you. Definitely appreciated the last, last year we were together, um, you know, through some, through some really difficult stuff. And uh, as I do with all my guests on the podcast, uh, I give you the mic here at the end to to speak freely, say what you want to say for as long as you want to say. So <laughs> I've been talking re- enough. <laughs> retired Sergeant Manny Luciano with the final word. I can't believe we just talked for however many hours. So, I mean, honestly, what I want to say, and uh, I'll try and say it without getting too emotional because I do get emotional with certain things. One thing that, you know, I wish we as officers, you know, still being in law enforcement, not like I once was on patrol out there, you know, every day in and out, being in a school environment, dealing with kids that have, you know, uh, issues, um, and uh, just if they're treated the right way, can hopefully overcome those issues. Um, I think people need to understand that it's okay to talk about PTSD. It's okay to talk about suicide. Um, one thing I didn't bring up, which till this day, it just, you know, it, it's another thing that I, I can't think about without being emotional is, um, when I got the phone call from my brother in 2008, when, um, 
you know, it's, I, I just got to say it because, I mean, I truly miss him. I just wish, um, maybe, I, you know, who knows? Uh, but when I was in Iraq in 2008, my brother called me to tell me, um, you know, Todd Russell had taken his life and man, I was just over there. I had to take, I think I actually asked the first sergeant to take, it was several days. Like I just wasn't myself because I'm in the middle of a desert in Baghdad. And, you know, when I did get back, I was able to talk to my brother and, you know, he, he just told me, he said it was just, you know, it's so hard, like it just heartaches, you know, and what hit me the hardest when he said that, you know, when he was at the funeral, he, you know, he couldn't hold it back. And he said that, um, you know, um, Todd's daughter, you know, screamed out. Um, I don't know what I would have done if I would have been. I still um, have a picture of him, you know, that I got um, from his funeral. Um, I have that uh, with me in my office. I used to carry it in my hat um, at work. Uh, but I miss him a lot. Uh, I keep in touch with his twin brother, um, Facebook. And, you know, it's usually once, twice a year. I've asked him to come out from, come down from, he's up near Pittsburgh to come golf and hang out, you know, because it's like, if you talk to him, that's mm. Todd, man. It's yeah. just, it's like, you're like, whoa, of course, being a twin. I mean, it's, um, and that, the reason why I'm bringing that up is, you know, the recent things that have occurred. And again, you know, um, I wasn't as good of friends with, but, I had a trip that <laughs> went to, to Vegas when, uh, you know, Odie went and, uh, you know, again, I was overseas when he took his life and I don't say I would have had any type of impact to stop that, but like I talked to Todd a lot. It was me, Shank and McLaughlin. We, I say ran, <laughs> we patrolled the Southwest and Southeast when we had permanent partners. So we'd always rotate. And, you know, I just, when I heard that news, man, that hit home, like, and then of course, and I'll try and not babble too much longer, but it's like over the last couple of years with, you know, people passing away, officers that I remember sitting in lineup with and, you know, you're having a good day and, or you're having a bad day and they would tell you, Hey, Luciano, you all right? Yeah, this, uh, uh, listen, man, meet up with me, you know over here or over there in a parking lot, we just talk for a minute. And, you know, a couple of those officers, uh, being ones that for whatever reasons, you know, made the decision to take their own life. Um, it just bothers me just because, you know, having kids and, but, you know, people get to that point and I wish they would just talk to anybody. Um, and just say, man, I need help. Like, what's the point of trying to, you know, be uh, this warrior and, you know, um, keep it all in and then end up doing something like that? And, you know, people can say what they want about my comments. I don't care. Um, I wish more of our profession, um, as well as still with the military, um, 
would go get the help, um, find the help, and kind of get to my last point with my words here is I remember back in the day uh, as a shift, we would have get-togethers, whether it was a party or just a get-together, breakfast, whatever. Like, I know that's starting to come back again. I've heard that it's coming back around again, which is nice with, uh, you know, my former department. Um, you know, I have tried to get uh, retirees together now uh, from the department because I just had one recently where uh, 18 retired officers showed up. And every single one of them that showed up came up to me and said, thank you. A couple of them said, it sucks that two of our officers, the most recent two that are no longer with us, couldn't be here. Because mm-hmm. we wanted to talk to them, see how they were doing, so on and so forth. And, you know, it, it really sucks that, you know, things happen the way they happen. Because, um, you know, one of those officers responded to my Facebook post saying he was going to be there. Mm. And ends up not showing because, you know, things happen. So I just want officers out there to realize that, yeah, we have our families. Um, I rely on my wife (laughs) a whole hang of a lot and my family for things. But when I'm at work, which you think about it, you're sometimes at work more with fellow officers than you are with your family. Um, hopefully you can find somebody, um, at work that you can get really close to and that you can talk about this stuff. Cause if you don't, man, you know, we might have another statistic and I don't want to see another one. Like there's already been quite a few. So sorry to get all sad and end it that way. Uh, so I'll bring it back up and say, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to continue to try and get guys together. Um, I wanted to tell you that, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate the way the show does always talk about, um, you know, uh, understanding that, you know, we, people, some people get all bent out of shape about religion and so on and so forth. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, me personally, um, you know, no question about it over my (laughs) military career, law enforcement career, and just things I've done, um, you know, uh, we're all sinners and we realize that we ask for forgiveness. And if, if we are truly wanting that forgiveness, we will get it. Um, and eventually we're all going to see each other. Um, you know, uh, when God makes that decision and I want to be remembered, uh, as someone that really always was there, if asked a phone call right now from anyone from our department, previous department. I know you're working for a new department. Uh, and, you know, I have several officers I work with now, a phone call. And there's no question that I'm out the door if someone would need help. So um, if anybody wants to ever talk to anybody, uh, Lusitania, uh, Manny Luciano is available for that conversation. And uh, my intent uh, here in the next year, probably when it gets nice again, is to uh, have, you know, some, some, fellas over from, you know, different groups over to my house because we got a nice pool that we want to use and just have guys over to talk about whatever. Um, Even if it is talking shop, you know, we always have those fun stories and talking about foot pursuits and all this other stuff that we used to get involved in. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, having this podcast and still, you know, having 
the the that part of it um because you know i found out in the last few years you know um if that's not part of your life then i mean you really shouldn't i mean it's like you can't even complain about anything because the reality is uh you get so far in life the ultimate finality and we all know it is one day we're going to die uh we live for our children at least i do um you know we just want to make sure that hopefully their lives you know are like my did my parents did for me gave me a good life i want to give them a good life maybe a little bit better i don't know hopefully and uh just realize that it's you know all by the grace of god that uh we continue to uh you know do things on this earth in a positive manner so i just wanted to tell you that i appreciate you i appreciate you thanks manny Before I get into the rest of the show, I wanted to let you know that you can follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and now also on Instagram. On Twitter, you can find me at mtonyw, and on Facebook and Instagram, just search for the podcast by name. You can also find out more about the podcast and what it's all about at www.diakonosacc.com. If you're a patron of the podcast, I have a brand new patron-only episode coming soon. Some of you will be able to engage live with Gary and I on that episode, which will air at 4 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday, the 2nd of October. All patrons will have access to that episode after it is recorded, so patrons keep an eye on your email for more information about that. Love and appreciate all of my patron supporters, every single one, and this podcast would not be what it is without your help and support. I really appreciated Manny coming on and being open and vulnerable about those things on the job and his combat tours, which greatly affected him and which you could hear uh, when he was speaking to me. Many of us in law enforcement are excellent at stuffing down the emotion that's brought on by the job. What Manny modeled for us is that it's okay to let that emotion out. For sure, on the job and in the moment, you have to control your emotions and do the job, but we get so good at it that it becomes our way of life. For years, I did that. I didn't have time or energy to deal with the emotion. Plus, I had a family to lead. I had a job to do. I had more bad guys to arrest. I had the next call. I had officers to lead. On and on, I stuffed the emotion. I didn't know how much the cumulative effect of the job had affected me until my last couple years in Lancaster City. By that time, I, I was a ticking time bomb and my emotions were volcanic and I could barely contain them. I still struggle with it to this day. This job will affect you and its effects will seep out. Maybe you can keep it under wraps for a while, but at some point it will begin to seep out and it will affect you. Manny talked about officers we both know that we have lost to suicide. Officers who saw no other way out of that hole. There is a way out. Find someone to talk to, seek help. I did it. It took me a long time, but I did it. While I am more than willing to listen, the absolute best help I can offer is the rest in peace found in relationship with Jesus. I know some may grow tired of the faith aspect of this podcast, but quite frankly, I really don't care. My relationship with Jesus sustains me. It maintains me. He has saved me. I still have some bad days. I'm still pretty messed up sometimes. I even tell Lauren sometimes I feel pretty messed up and sometimes she agrees with me. That's okay. And I know that because of what Jesus has done, I am an heir with him. And one day all will be made right and I will be with him and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. 
And that's what we read in Revelations 21.4. But that day is not yet. We wait for the not yet. In the meantime, I want to support those who do the job and who are daily misunderstood and demonized. One way I do that is I try to shine a light on secular wokeness that negatively impacts law enforcement. For this episode, I'm going to show you how the 30 by 30 initiative is so woke it's broke. Often the ideas, initiatives, and movements of those who identify as woke sound and look good, but beneath the surface is a rebellion against God and his word. This may be a challenging So Woke It's Broke segment for some of you, but bear with me as I work through it, because there's a lot of information here, and I want to be clear as I work through it. So what is the 30 by 30 initiative? Well, I knew nothing about this initiative until the department I retired from, Lancaster City, recently signed on to the 30 by 30 pledge. It's an initiative that states that its ultimate goal is to increase the representation of women in police recruit classes to 30% by 2030, and to ensure police policies and culture intentionally support the success of qualified women officers throughout their careers. That's right from their website. Right now, approximately 12% of police officers are women. It is one of the answers to reforming the police, according to this initiative. On their homepage, they state, quote, the underrepresentation of women in policing undermines public safety. Really? That's my response. Really? This is what really undermines public safety? Not bail reform, which daily places violent criminals back on the street? Not the defund and abolish the police movements that continually use groups like BLM to demonize the police and attempts to normalize violence against them? Not the push to completely castrate the police and punish them for doing their job? Not the constant push to worry about criminals and their feelings instead of protecting the public. Not those things, not any of those things that I just said, but women being underrepresented is what undermines public safety. Really? The co-founders of the initiative are Maureen McGow and retired Newark, New Jersey police chief, Yvonne Roman. In September 2020, both contributed to an article in the Cosmopolitan magazine called Quote, how women want to fix the police problem. The tagline for this article said, police departments and how they operate revolve around systems built by men, systems that killed George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McLean, and so many others, systems that are broken. And as the country grapples with how to move forward, it's time to listen to new voices, women, end quote. Different women within this article made arguments for defunding the police, abolishing the police, changing the police at every single level. McGowan and Roman participated in this article promoting why more women in law enforcement was a solution or the solution. In addition, the quick check of Macau's social media showed some secular left-leaning views. One of the most troubling to me as a police officer was her promotion of an article in March by defense attorney James Doyle in which he makes a case that President Biden should commute the death sentence of Boston Marathon bomber Johar Tsarnaev. One of the main pages on the 30 by 30 Website states that research, quote, suggest, not proves, but suggest certain things about women officers. These suggestions don't have any links attached to them to see specific research that was used to reach these claims. I'll address the first two suggestions on that list. They are, the first one, that women use less force and less excessive force. Now, this sounds really nice, but I'd like to push back a little bit. How are, the, how are they defining excessive force? The founders appeared in an article that named Breonna Taylor as one of the parties to prove that the system of law enforcement is broken. 
Well, the use of force against Taylor wasn't excessive. It was tragic, but it was caused by the violent action of the suspect beside her. So if that incident is used to promote the idea of excessive force within the profession, well, then I believe the initiative's ideas of what excessive of what is excessive is skewed. Furthermore, the use of less force means nothing to me. For instance, an officer that uses less force may in fact not be doing his or her job. Most, if not all, police departments have policies, have use of force policies in their departments that hold officers accountable that don't use force when it's appropriate to do so. So again, this statement sounds nice, but what does it mean? How are its terms defined? And the use of less force by women or any officer for that matter can be extremely negative and policy violating action and behavior. Another one of the suggestions they list on this page are women are named in fewer complaints and lawsuits. Again, this this means very little to me. The best cops I know are proactive and aggressively go after the criminal element. And every proactive cop will find themselves under complaint and sued at some point. I did. Every single one. Any officer who's really doing his job will be have complaints filed and lawsuits filed against him. So to be named in less complaints and less lawsuits may actually mean you're not engaging with the criminal element enough. Also included on this site is a FAQ handout. On that handout, which appears to be able to be easily printed, one of the questions is, one of the questions is why focus on women? Isn't all diversity important? I'm only going to read part of the answer to that question, and it says, Quote, though 30 by 30 focuses on increasing the representation of women, we teach participating agencies to use an intersectional lens when analyzing their culture and practices. Intersectionality acknowledges the ways in which people's multiple identities, race and ethnicity, class, gender, sexual orientation, religion, ability, and more magnify or transform their exposure to discrimination. When agencies identify and address inerrant biases and policies or practices that discriminate against diverse candidates, they help to promote the creation of a more inclusive workplace for everyone. So the picture is becoming clearer about this initiative. This isn't just about women in law enforcement, it's about intersectionality. Well, what is that exactly? To give you the Merriam-Webster definition, it is the complex cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, discrimination, such as racism, sexism, classism, combine overlap, or intersect, especially in the experiences of marginalized individuals or groups. As I've stated before in these segments, wokeism and the activists who push it are never satisfied. And this, once again, proves it. While this initiative is about getting more women in law enforcement, as you dive deeper into the website and what they believe and what they're promoting, it's clear that this is only the beginning and that even if 30% of law enforcement are women by 2030, they won't be happy. They address it on the website with a full paragraph titled Intersectionality. It says, quote, Participating agencies must address intersectionality in all efforts to improve the representation and experiences of women in policing. Intersectionality acknowledges the ways in which people's multiple identities, race and ethnicity, class, gender, sexual orientation, religion, ability, and more magnify or transform their exposure to discrimination. This means the way race and discrimination is experienced is not the same for everyone. Women of color in particular will often face compounding experiences of bias and discrimination based not only on their gender, but also their race or ethnicity. Though 30 by 30 focuses on increasing the representation of women, it is critical that agencies apply an intersectional lens when analyzing their culture and practices to better promote the creation of a diverse and inclusive workplace for everyone, end quote. Does that sound like an initiative that will ever be satisfied? 
Of note is that intersectionality is also heavily addressed in guiding principles of the report they conducted in 2019. Is 30% of law enforcement as women going to be enough? What if the women aren't the right race, the right ethnicity, the right class? What if applicants aren't the right gender, the right sexual orientation, the right religion, the right whatever is dreamed up next? Where does it end? When the mob says it ends. And does the ability to do the job, ability to excel at the mission, does that matter anymore? Or only how you look, how you identify, and how many points of intersectionality you can meet? I can tell you unequivocally, the mission of law enforcement in hiring those that are best for the job is no longer the goal in recruitment within some agencies, especially urban agencies. There is so much confusion right now about what the actual mission of law enforcement is, is that the mission has now become the need for the department to look a certain way. Hiring the best person to do the job is secondary. And it is made secondary because optics is the new important mission to some law enforcement agencies. While McGow and Roman are the co-founders of 30 by 30 initiative, in 2019, the National Institute of Justice worked with them and other attendees at a forum to create a special report on the initiative. The National Institute of Justice is the research development and evaluation agency of the United States Department of Justice. That's a fact that you probably shouldn't ignore, as there is a push within the initiative to have federal government control and oversee local law enforcement. So on the 30 by 30 website, there's a link to this 44-page report from this uh, forum uh, that they had in 2019. And I wanted to draw some highlights out from that. The report states at the beginning that nearly, quote, nearly 100 people attended this forum. However, at the end of the report, the attendees are listed. It numbers 85. I think that nearly 100 was a bit of an exaggeration. Okay, I'll give it to them. In addition, out of the 85 attendees, who was there was of more concern to me. I counted only 32 of those 85 attendees as active law enforcement officers. The rest of the attendees were academics, and 20 of them were from the Department of Justice. Only a handful of the attendees were men. At the beginning of the report, it states that the purpose was to put forth questions, themes for a research agenda to, quote, better understand the state of women in American policing and improve the representation and experiences of women in the field, end quote. This is confusing to me, since the website suggests that there is already true research showing the state of women in law enforcement. We're now creating a report to put forth questions and themes for that research. One of the guiding principles in this report states, quote, women are not a homogenous group. As a group, women face disproportionate challenges in policing. However, women is an extremely broad category. Data collection should be conducted in a way that allows the analysis of rank, background, economic status, race, sexual orientation, gender, identity, and many other factors, end quote. Again, in this, we see this intersectionality focus and proof that the activists will not be happy with achieving their 30 by 30 dream. Listed in this report that came out of this forum that was held was a research agenda. And I'm going to highlight several questions from that research agenda. The first one is, what is the relationship between race, ethnicity, and gender in these issues between sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender? What are the specific experiences of officers who are women of color? And how does the intersection of gender and race affect the challenges of women of color in this occupation? End of question. Again, I'm just going to highlight one part of the answer to that question. It's a quote from one of the attendees, and it says, I think folks are still putting minorities in positions to say they checked the box. We need more of a commitment to diversity in how we look, how we think, 
what we value as an organization, end quote. To this, I say, of course they are. When there is so much pressure to have people doing the job and or in certain positions who are a certain race, certain gender, or identify a certain way, yes, of course, actual ability plummets to the bottom of the list because initiatives like this actually are bullying agencies to make everything appear a certain way. The optics are more important. So yes, of course, boxes are being checked because the person, the right person for the job is no longer the mission. Looking a certain way, an agency looking a certain way is the new mission. Second question, quote, do departments have different criteria for women and men? Should they? Highlighted as part of the answer to this question is this, quote, qualitative research has found that women do not want different standards than men for being hired or promoted. Rather, they want decisions to be merit-based using unbiased standards, end quote. Again, this is really important because as I continue to break down this report, you'll see that while the idea is promoted that this initiative doesn't want different standards, they in fact push this idea to completely change the standards, which in fact is different standards. Next question, quote, what is the role of a police officer today and how can we recruit accordingly? End quote. Again, reading part of the response to that question, quote, one attendee stated, one of the big problems with recruitment, especially of women, is that the image from the media is that real policing is cops and robbers going out and catching the bad guy. This isn't necessarily the day-to-day, end quote. Again, this push to reimagine or reform the actual mission of police work. Every single kid who has played cops and robbers understands the police face off with bad guys. That is their main task. Sure, there are aspects of the job which require good communication skills, problem-solving techniques. Those are all parts of the job. But the job will always ultimately be going after criminals. That is the job. Next question. Quote, to what extent do hiring criteria and physical fitness requirements and tests accurately reflect the standards and skills needed to be a successful officer? End quote. Again, reading part of the answer to this question, quote, research shows that women are disproportionately disadvantaged by certain hiring and physical fitness requirements, and there is a lack of evidence that these tests accurately reflect the actual duties of law enforcement officer. Attendees identified these requirements as a major challenge for women, with one participant wondering if these were deliberate attempts to, quote, wash women out, end quote. So in a, in a, in a NPR article in July of 2022 called Increasing Women Police Recruits to 30% Could Help Change Department's Culture, a female officer in that article was quoted as stating the physical aspect of the job of police work is, 10, is only 10 or 20% of the job. Now, I don't know where she came up with that figure. I don't even know if it's correct. But if let's, let's assume for the, for the point of discussion that she is correct, that 10 to 20% of the job is actual physical interaction, physical in nature. Well, that 10 or 20% is some of the most stressful and terrifying moments where physical fitness and the ability to perform must be had. It is needed to get a person into custody and possibly survive and to protect other people. To put it in perspective, perspective, and as I've stated before, there has not been a fire at a school uh, that has killed anyone since I believe the 1950s. And yet, Every school has sprinkler systems in it, fire extinguishers, um, and, and that's, be, that's even when the percentage of any fire is minuscule. And yet, if a school board decided, for whatever reason, to pull those items out of schools, people would find that extremely concerning. So in law enforcement, the choice becomes, do we believe that physical fitness matters or not? Does physical ability play a part? Well, absolutely does. 
the physical standards for women are already lower than men. So how much lower are we going to bring them to get more women hired? And if the argument can be made to lower the physical standards for women, I promise you the male standards will also dip. And if you lower standards, you don't get better people. There has never been any job that has lowered standards and gotten better people. No woman has ever lowered her standards and gotten a better man. No man has ever lowered his standards and gotten a better woman. It, it, it doesn't happen. And because, again, it's not about hiring the best people for the job. It's about hiring the people that look, identify, or believe a certain way within these initiatives. That is a problem. Next quote, is rotating shift work necessary? End quote. Again, partial response to that question, quote, are other more family-friendly pol- policies feasible? Summit attendees reported that rotating shift work is difficult for families and disproportionately impacts women, and they question whether shift schedules and other policies truly benefit agencies. We're, first of all, we're so weak. I have young kids, and I hate working nights. I, I can't stand it, but I do it. Police work is not the most family-friendly employment you can be in. It never will be. And the reason is because your criminals like to engage in crime at night. So you need officers at night. So we don't want bias standards, but we want family-friendly hours for women. And as I'll discuss at the end of this, uh, of this So Woke It's Broke segment, that this is kind of like my main issue with the initiative. It is the reframing of the primary God-given role of women. Women who are married and have children are primary managers of the home. And I'll, I'll point to scripture to prove that. Here we see the initiative acknowledging it. They're actually acknowledging that priority for women is like family schedule, but they're still attempting to change it. An attendee of this forum was quoted later in the same report saying, quote, the biggest obstacle for women in police work is the ability to balance work and family life. A lot of women simply opt out of policing for this reason. Exactly. Because women have been created with different strengths and roles. It's not a bad thing. Next question. Quote, why do women leave policing both during and after the academy? Are retention rates and reasons for leaving similar for men and women? What is the cost to departments when they lose officers in whom they have invested significant training funds, particularly early in their careers? Here's part of the response to that. Quote, a special report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics indicates that in academies with a predominantly stress-based military model, paramilitary drills, intensive physical demands, public disciplinary measures, female recruits had a 68% completion rate compared to 81% for male recruits. In academies with a predominantly non-stress model, which includes an emphasis on academic achievement, physical training, and supportive instructor training relationship, female and male recruits both had a completion rate of 89%. Again, here are some of my thoughts. Maybe most women generally don't want to do the job. Have we considered that? Most of the women I know don't want to do police work. You also see throughout the study statements of wanting to be treated the same with no changes in expectations, but then a realization that expectations need to be changed for women to pass and or be retained. And in regards to making law enforcement more doable for women and recognizing that we need more bodies and we need more people, I, I agree. Like we need more people in law enforcement. And we got a bunch of mama's boys who want to play video games and be lazy into their 30s or 40s or whatever. So we need, we need to own that. You know, when I read stories of men's and men and teenagers who fought in World War II, I'm amazed at how weak our men are. 
and how, how weak our culture demands them to be. Uh, because strength and manliness are part of the patriarchy and are curse words. And the feminization and emasculation of men is forcing women to have to step into these positions that men are better equipped to do. This report goes on to lay out some promising practices and and next steps. One of them is to create flexible, family-friendly policies with parental leave, postnatal nursing, non-rotating shift schedule. Again, what what about manpower needs? Who who gets the non-rotating shifts? And what kind of havoc is that going to create? Are you going to have non-rotating shifts of, of just women? Like, how, how do you work out those logistics? Police work is a seven days a week, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. How are you going to work out the logistics of having some rotating shifts and some, some non-rotating shifts? I mean, that's pretty biased. I thought that's not what was wanted, but that's pretty biased. Another promising practice they pushed forward is re-examining physical fitness standards. My response to that is, what about the women who can pass them? You know, I had Detective Higgins on. She, she outperformed some of the men in her academy. What about, what about the women who can pass them? There are women out there who can pass these physical standards. And then what about the men who can't pass them? Do we lower them? Because, and here's the thing, maybe that guy has a great conflict resolution skills, or he's a strong social work background. Or maybe, and this is where the intersectionality comes in, Maybe we lowered the men's standards because maybe the guy looks a certain way, or he identifies as a woman, or he has a level of intersectionality that moves him to the top of the woke social pecking order, so hiring him is more important than actually hiring someone who could do the job better. That's my concern with this initiative, one of my concerns. But it's not the main issue. My main issue with this initiative is this. It's not that I think women can't be or should not be in law enforcement. In fact, I've worked with some very capable women in law enforcement. I've worked with some very incapable women in law enforcement as well. I had one of those very capable women in law enforcement on this podcast, Detective Higgins. And I've also highlighted the work of women police officers on this podcast in at least one or two of my Cue the Dip segments. My main issue is that this initiative seeks to deny what I believe as a Christian and to push an agenda that does not square with what God says. In Genesis 2, God creates man, Adam, and he puts him to work in the Garden of Eden. His job was to keep and cultivate the garden. Then he created a woman, Eve, to be his helper. Even in this moment, we saw God create both a man and a woman with distinct roles. The man, a worker, and the woman, a supporter. And this was done before the fall, before sin entered our world. It was the plan of God, the perfect plan when he made them with certain roles and priorities. Neither one more important than the other. In fact, the creation of man wasn't good until God created the woman. Throughout the creation story, God created and proclaimed after each creation that what he saw, what he had created, was good. But that was not the case with the man. When God created Adam and he put him in the garden to work in it, he says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So think about that. God created everything and everything he created, he identified as good and complete. But when he created man, he identified that it wasn't yet good and the man needed a woman. This was not a case of God making a mistake or not knowing what he was doing. But I believe it's recorded in the Bible to establish a very important thing. I believe it's there for us to read in black and white to establish the absolute importance and value of women. They were needed to make it complete, to make it good. However, the roles can also not be understated. 
Adam created by God to work and Eve created by God to help him. And it wasn't good until both were created and established in their roles by God Almighty. And so it's on that base that I ultimately attack this initiative. I don't come up with these so woke it's broke segments in a vacuum created in my own mind. At least my, my prayer is that I, I never do. These truths are grounded. I try to ground them in the word of God. And initiatives like 30 by 30 are steeped in secularism and hatred of what God has created and established. Titus 2, 3 to 5 says older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Proverbs 31 speaks of the attributes of a godly mother and wife as being one who prioritizes the care of her family and seeks ways to earn additional income without neglecting her primary role as a manager of the home, a helper and a caretaker of her husband and children. These ideas are absolutely scoffed at in our culture. They're even scoffed at by some people in the church. In fact, to even say it will quickly get you labeled as a chauvinist pig and a supporter of the very evil patriarchy. But I'm not. By God's grace, I believe his word, his teaching. I believe what he says, and by his grace, I try to follow it. So your quarrel is not with me, but with your creator. In addition, we see how God has created men and women differently, physically and mentally. Men created with testosterone that caused them to have stronger bones and stronger muscles and makes them generally more aggressive. This is no accident. Since the beginning of time, men have been the protectors and the hunters and the ones that do the hard physical labor. labor. The ones relied on to do hard, physically challenging work and to fight on behalf of their women, their country, and their neighbors. God made men to be this way, and it should not be viewed as a negative, just as how he made women should not be viewed as a negative. His way in his creation and the roles and priorities he has placed upon men and women are for our own good, and to deny them or try to change them or absolutely rebel against them will only lead to more misery. So the truth of the word of God and what, it, what he says is what I stand on during this segment. Within these passages, I see no commandment that women can't work. What I see is priorities laid out and the best plan for women, especially women who are married and have children, that being to be primarily focused on the care of their husband and children and the management of the home. Lauren and I fully prescribe to this. She stopped working while pregnant with our first. She remained at home and did not take a part-time jo- job until both were in school for at least part, the de- part of the day. Currently, both our kids are in school full-time and Lauren holds a very part-time job, making sure the management of the home is our primary role. It has been a huge blessing to me and our kids. We've seen nothing but good come out of that decision. I didn't force her to stay home. She believes these passages as strongly as I do. It also does not mean I'm not involved and don't lead. That is one of my roles. But the work that Lauren does on the home front are paramount for me being able to work full-time and also do this podcast. I think my daughter summed up our convictions perfectly the other day, because as I was preparing this segment and speaking with Lauren about it, Lauren posed some questions to our daughter. She asked, do you think women can do everything men can do? And do you think men can do everything women can do? And our daughter replied no to both those questions. And then Lauren asked, why not? And our daughter said, because God made them different, and that's a good thing. Absolutely. It's a good thing. And therein lies the crux of my issue with the 30 by 30 initiative. It's not that women can't be police officers, 
or that they should not be police officers. It's that the initiative seeks to reform the plan that God has established for men and women, to push women to do a job that most were not meant to do and that most don't want to do, and to push departments to change standards in order to align with a secular woke ideology that will cause both women, police departments, and communities pain for years to come. Because in its arrogance, in the arrogance of this initiative, and the arrogance of those who promote and founded it, it pushes a rebellion against what God says. And when there is rebellion against God, only heartache comes. To the dip. All right, in keeping with the local vibe on this episode, uh, that being having a retired Lancaster City Sergeant on as my guest, and having the 30 by 30 initiative as my So Woke It's Broke segment, which came onto my radar because of Lancaster City, my kicking up the dust in pursuit winner should also be from Lancaster City on this episode. And that officer is Ryan Yoder. Here's what happened on the 27th of August, just about a month ago, around 6 p.m., Officer Yoder observed a vehicle he knew had been involved in earlier criminal activity and which had fled from uh, police. He attempted to conduct a traffic stop on this car for a minor inspection violation. Upon stopping the car, two suspects inside began to walk away from the car and then ultimately fled on foot. The juvenile driver of the car rammed Officer Yoder's cruiser and began to drive in reverse, attempting to flee the stop. The driver then threw the car in drive and rammed Officer Yoder again. Since the suspect was using his vehicle as a weapon, and Officer Yoder recognized he was in danger of serious bodily injury, he used his cruiser to disable the suspect vehicle and immediately stopped the flight and assaultive actions of the suspect. The suspect exited the car with a stolen handgun in his hand and fortunately dropped it as he was trying to flee from the car. The suspect was arrested and a later search of the car yielded a second stolen handgun inside. Other officers working worked to identify the other two suspects who had fled the car and they were also charged. The juvenile suspect was ultimately charged with aggravated assault on a police officer, various firearm and drug charges, reckless endangerment, and fleeing the police. Of interesting note on this case, as that was happening and as they were looking for the suspects um, in this car, the the suspects who had fled from the car and were checking the area for those suspects, an officer, actually an officer who was on my unit at the end of my career, great guy, he spotted another juvenile who matched the description of one of those suspects who had fled the car. That juvenile was clutching his waistband as if he was holding a gun, and when officers attempted to stop him, he also fled on foot, but was quickly apprehended. He was in possession of a stolen handgun and crack cocaine. And uh, what's interesting, it was later determined that this juvenile who had fled on foot was not even involved in the initial car stop Officer Yoder had conducted. So some quick thoughts on all this. First, I have no idea what kind of record these juveniles had, but as is the case in, in this country of doing literally nothing to juveniles but a slap on the wrist, so it is in Lancaster. In certain cases, juveniles can be charged as adults, and I hope that happened in this case, but I don't, I don't know that it did. I'm not sure. There is no other recourse in a case like this than to charge them appropriately and lock them up. A juvenile who is acting in this manner needs to be locked up, and any attempt to reform or rehabilitate should be done in a setting where the juvenile has no freedom. At this point, and with this level of violence and criminal action, lockup is required to increase the chances of any change in attitude or character. Maybe it's sad, tragic, but it's also the reality. These kids that are engaged in this stuff, I don't care how old they are, lock them up. Rehabilitate them, try to reform them, try to change attitude and character in lockup. They pose a danger to the public. And until we wrestle with that and actually start 
doing more than just slapping them on the wrist, it's only going to get worse and worse and the kids doing it are only gonna get younger and younger. Also say this, recently Lancaster City Police have been doing a much better job at highlighting the work of their officers on social media and I hope that continues. I also quickly highlight the Lancaster City Officers Association and its website at www.lcpdoa.com, which has several excellent arrest incidents highlighted uh, by its officers. Officer Yoder has been involved in several critical incidents and he proactively and aggressively goes after the criminal element in Lancaster City. He did an excellent job on this incident and he is saluted as this episode's Cue the Dip standout. Lastly, I wanted to present a story that has been on my mind for months. I've literally been thinking about months about talking about this on the podcast at some point. It's found in Acts 7. It's the story of Stephen being seized and dragged before the high priest in Jerusalem after being falsely accused of blasphemy against God. It's here that Stephen gives his defense, professing that Jesus was who he said he was and points out their involvement and hand in the murder of Jesus. This obviously infuriates the priests and the people listening, and they drive Stephen outside the city and stone him to death. Stephen is actually considered the first Christian martyr. But the part of the story that has been on my mind for months is in Acts 7, 55-56. And it says, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, he being Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I must confess that as I read it, my deceitfully wicked heart focused on Stephen, not Jesus, but on Stephen and what he had done, and how because of what Stephen did, Jesus stood for him, which quickly turned me into hoping that I would do enough, say enough, be enough, that Jesus would stand for me. But I was quickly convicted as I meditated on that scripture and began to consider what Jesus was doing and why he was really standing. Most passages when referring to Jesus in heaven talk of him sitting at the right hand of God, not standing. So why was Jesus standing in this moment? I initially and falsely believed it was because of who Stephen was and what he did in his final moments. As I read further down the passage and see Stephen cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, I thought about how one stands to receive someone into their home. In my short study, I found that theologians appear to generally agree that Jesus was standing to receive Stephen, but that he was also standing as Stephen's advocate and in judgment of those who were killing him. My conviction lied in the fact that I initially thought of Jesus standing for Stephen because of who Stephen was and what Stephen had done, and how I transferred that to myself, hoping that Jesus would stand for me one day based on my inflated view of my own righteousness. I was cut to the heart as I realized that Jesus stood because he hung. Jesus stood because he had hung on a cross and because he had paid the price for Stephen. He was not standing for Stephen because of Stephen's own righteousness. He stood for Stephen because when he died on the cross and rose again, he had imputed his righteousness onto Stephen. Jesus stood because he hung. Jesus stood because he lay in a tomb. Jesus stood because he rose from the dead. Jesus stood because he alone had saved Stephen. He alone had already paid the penalty for Stephen's sin. And then to pound the point home in my heart even more, we see Stephen cry out as he's being stoned to death, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus will stand again one day in judgment, and here Stephen is asking that he not hold the sin of his own murder against his murderers. And for sure, Jesus did stand in judgment of all who murdered Stephen. 
if they never repented and believed in him. And if they didn't repent and believe, at this very moment, they're being tormented in hell. But we know there was at least one involved in the murder who did confess and believe. His name was Saul. But he would later repent and believe and be known as the Apostle Paul. Paul, an active participant in murder, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Just as he did for Stephen and Paul, Jesus can also stand and receive you on your last day. Jesus can stand as your advocate on your last day, but it won't be on the merit of your own righteousness or your own good works. It will only be on his righteousness, for only he can save. You have only to repent and believe, understanding that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he hung on a cross for you, for your sin, that he paid the price, that he received the penalty due you. He took that and then he rose, conquering sin and death and providing the only way to God the Father. He will stand if you believe he hung for you. He will stand if you believe he was buried for you. He will stand if you believe he rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father even now. Right now, I hope you're down here on earth, kicking up the dust in pursuit of all the things you've been called to do, but most importantly, in pursuit of the one who saves. If you don't know him, I hope you make it your pursuit right now so he stands for you on your last day.